and you like reanimating, but you don't like Necrons, then maybe this is the army for you. Welcome to episode 45 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Adam Boise. Hey guys, nice to see you again. Dave Barker. Hello everybody, hello listeners. And for the first time on the show, Darren Wright. Hello everybody. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do so by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And speaking of growing communities, for the first time, we've got four of us on a show tonight. Yay. Welcome <laughs> so hopefully it's not going to get too confusing and cluttered with voices, but um, in particular, our new voice for tonight is Darren. So welcome, Darren. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Tony. I appreciate you having me on again. So. Yeah, it's funny because well, not you again, say again. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Realised yeah, straight away what I'd done there. Uh, it's not a problem at all, because this is your introduction to the world of podcasting, and time is not so linear here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, funnily enough, uh, Darren was one of our attendees at the Crucible of War the other month. Uh, in fact, it'll become apparent if you were to go check out his Instagram at all, which is what, Darren? Uh, my Instagram's Orc Daggers. It will become apparent why he won our Best Painted Award at the Crucible of War. Um, and he has since uh, recorded an interview with me to sort of go over his uh, experiences on the day. So, funnily enough, later in the episode tonight, we're going to have our first Tales from the Crucible with Daniel Foley. So, we've got another voice to look forward to later tonight, guys. Um, but the interview with Darren is actually going to be appearing in a future episode, and for all intents and purposes, tonight is the first time you guys will be hearing him and his first sort of experience of the show proper. So, welcome, Darren. Ah, oh, thanks, Tony. You picked a good one to join us because tonight we have got our latest Warzone supplement to go through. And funnily enough, this one has a lot of content for us to go through, more so than typically has been in the past um, supplements, so much so. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't even really seen that much coverage about Rift War on most of the other sort of mainline content producers. Well, speaking, taking out the cynical voice, perhaps that's because there's only yeah, two uh, new army lists in there, right? and, and nobody else covers seems to cover the narrative in the depth that we try to. 
That is exactly the point, pretty much, yeah. There's, in terms of a matched play interest in this book, there's basically very little, which is um, sort of unusual in that it's probably the first real in-depth supplement campaign stuff where it really is all supplementary to the game and it is not a requirement in order to play any given faction or army to effectiveness, you know, and stay up to date with the modern releases. Um, there's a lot of crusade stuff in here, there's new campaign systems, there's legendary missions, and there's <laughs> there's one official army of renown, which is the warp meld pack, and that's possibly the one thing that might have had a little bit of um, coverage elsewhere, which we are going to dive into because that is a good one. Um, but there's also some other sort of formations in here, as it were, that I'm dubbing Crusades of Renown, because <laughs> essentially it's armies of renown for Crusade-specific armies, so that's going to be yeah. fun to dive into. Yeah, there's, there's uh, different ways to play once again. I mean, I've, I've only, in all honesty, opened, opened the book up today, uh, but, but the bits I've read so far have been quite promising in looking at, at, at different ways to, to pick up and play a linked series of games, so uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that later. Yeah, so out of you know interest in time and to bother covering the things that are actually particularly interesting and to maybe cut short on some of the ones that are a bit more what you would expect, uh, there are two elements from the book tonight that we're not going to be covering, and that is specifically the Codex Supplement for the Castellans of the Rift Space Range chapter and the Army of Renown for the Cauteries of the Homunculi. And that is basically because these are your sort of standard do things slightly different slash do things better you know formations <laughs> they have a particular thing which is either they have some unique relics or unique stratagems which again are basically just do the things that army does anyway but better in some way depending on what strategies and resources you're using um in particular the castellans of the rift um codex supplement basically is more like an index of starties from white dwarf so over the last year to 18 months or whatever there's been index of starties articles for chapters like the exorcists the emperor's spears it's that sort of stuff it's basically here's a slightly configured chapter tactic and some extra stratagems if you want to play castles of the rift great this is the book for you you'll find their rules in here otherwise it's more more, more space marines doing space marine things can I just ask Tony, is that for like any kind of game match or is it just for like Crusade only? That one is for match play. Okay. Um, cool. As are the various index of starties issues in Might Dwarf. So like you say, if you are a fan of um, any of those particular given chapters, then yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you read some of the lore in here, you know, the Castellans of the Rift are pretty cool. <laughs> you know, um, they are very much a bespoke chapter designed to fulfill a particular role and objective you know a chapter founded to literally you know defend and scour the natural gauntlet you know of uh, chaos <laughs> a task given to them by Gulliman and one which is uh, proving somewhat insurmountable um, but the funny thing is I think this is probably going to do more for people who read this discover the nature and the history of the Castellans of the Rift and be inspired to collect an army of them than say people who previously already had chapters of these and now are celebrating the fact they've got some chapter specific rules because I can't imagine there were many Castle on the Rift players 
pre this book. Can imagine not if um, obviously like they've not had their own rules, things like that. You know what I mean? Like so now they've got them, it might like kind of like push people to kind of try and paint that kind of army now or something, pursue like a different codex. It's pretty cool. I think narratively it's quite uh, quite nice because it's one of the things that Gilliman did in the background. It's like, right, new chapter of Primaris there, you defend this. New chapter of Primaris there, you defend this. And he did that, you know, all the way on his grand tour. And um, so so whether the people actually pick up Hastlands or the rest themselves or whether they pick up um, a, an army that's a bit like them and use these rules, I, th I think there's a lot of opportunity for building your own stories with you if, you, if you like your Primaris only chapters. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how one of the reasons why I don't imagine there were many pre-existing collectors of this particular chapter is because they didn't exist pre-8th edition. Um, they didn't really exist pre-9th edition, really, because it was only during the mid-section of 8th edition when the Vigilus campaign originally sort of was introduced and the, the idea of the Natural Gauntlet was first presented that any mention of them would have happened, you know, or come about. So it's not like there's people all been collecting this chapter for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years previously. It is a completely brand new sort of chapter and narrative, and I think this is going to be more a book to get for maybe other reasons that might then inspire people to collect Castellans rather than people who've had them beforehand. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That, that's basically all we have to say tonight on the Castellans of the Rift. Go read up about them. I'm sure there'll be some fun facts about them in the near future on this very show. And uh, if you do find yourself at a later date inspired, then maybe you should try and source these rules after the fact. And then, yeah, otherwise the quarters of the Monkey is basically just homunculi covens, you know, rank, uh, racked up as it were. <laughs> racked up? Do you mean yeah. <laughs> Didn't... Uh, Completely unintended pun there. Yeah, you keep telling us that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what we will be doing is uh, we're going to split this show up tonight into sort of two parts, where the first part is going to be talking about the campaign system and the new legendary missions. Uh, then we're going to take a break and have our interview with our first Tales from the Crucible segment with Daniel Folling. And then we're going to come back and we will do the second half of the Rift War coverage, which is going to be all about the different sort of like army lists um, that exist within patch play and Crucible, yeah, not Crucible, and Crusade. So yeah, the only other sort of announcements to get into before we dive into this properly is that, um, first of all, tonight we've got a, a new patron to shout out. So thank you very much to Sarah Soden for signing up to the Patreon and pledging her support. And it's worth noting that Sarah is um, our Sisters of Battle resident player from the Crucible of War. So anyone who was there, you've probably had a chance to meet her and seen her spectacular Sisters of Battle army. And uh, hopefully we're going to see her at the second Crucible of War, which is uh, taking place later this year on October 15th. And tickets are available now. Um, at time of recording, the event pack has been finished, so by the time you're listening to this, the event pack should also be um, up and available to, uh, to download and view. So there will be links for that in the description below, and yeah, hopefully, after hearing all about the Crucible of War last episode, and hearing the tales from the Crucible as we go forward, if you haven't already been inspired to uh, try and pick up a ticket, 
well, now's your chance because hopefully you'll uh, get something really uh, great out of the experience that you might not have done before and we'd love to see you there. Yeah, super tier. That's going to be available. We're really looking forward to the next one. I've not bought a ticket yet, Tony, but I have secured domestic approval to go, which of course is <laughs> absolutely essential prerequisite. You're gambling, it might sell out. I bought my ticket before before getting domestic approval, so I'll... Uh, <laughs> You'll live life yeah. on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> Playing it dangerously. Brutal and not so cunning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, great. So um, with that then, we will jump into the first part of our Warzone Natchmund Rift War coverage. And we're back, guys. So, where best to start? Well, I think the best place to look at, first of all, is going to be with our brand new War of Desperation campaign. So this is the latest campaign system as presented in Rift War. And it's basically a bit of an evolution of the one that we had in Vigilus Alone. So, do you remember at all from the last time we talked about um, the previous Warzone book? Uh, the system where there was like three trackers and at each of the campaign phases the trackers on each location would move in favour of either the Chaos or Imperial Alliance. Vaguely, I never read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well basically it's that again but sort of extended. Um, so whereas before you had three linear tracks representing three territories that were being fought over um, in this instance, we've now got three sort of like flowchart maps, um, which have different branching routes depending on which steps the alliance decides to move the marker. Um, and depending on exactly where on the track it is, is worth either varying amounts of strategic victory points or provide some boons for that alliance in certain war zones. So it's basically these, you know, progressive trees of um, control, but with some tactical decisions to be made rather than just pushing it forwards or backwards along the track. That sounds really interesting. Makes spice things up a little bit. Yeah. So um, this particular campaign system um, uses two alliances, um, Imperial and Chaos, and has the usual... Um, sort of editor's notes saying that, you know, any Xenos faction or anyone else could come up with a reason as to why it would exist within a particular alliance. So it's not excluding non-Imperial, non-Chaos players. Um, the campaign as a whole is played over several phases. Each phase, games are played in order to win Warzone points. Each alliance with the most Warzone points at the end of that phase um, wins that particular phase for that particular territory, this instance because you'll be tracking them separately for each territory and therefore the alliance can move its marker um, and then at the end of the campaign um, the strategic victory points are totaled up for each of the alliances to determine which one is the overall winner Does this need to be played with like multiple players or could it be a, a two person campaign still? It could in theory be a two person campaign um the issue with that is that you would probably want to play one game per territory right. in order to feel like 
you were engaging on all the war zones, whereas with multiple players, a single player could just be concentrating on a single territory. That's good. Um, so I think it's doable, but I think you would probably want to um, make a minimum of three games per phase in that case between the two of you. Uh, so, just to give you an idea of um, the examples that we've got. So the three war zones that we're fighting over are the surface of Darovar, the mandible point of Darovar, and the Gracchiloid Narrow. So the some Gracchiloid wonderful... Narrow. Yep, some wonderful names there. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, the first example, the surface of Darovar, um, in terms of the uh, tracker, you've got three positions initially in the center where you've got contested, and then you've got chaos dug in or imperial advance. So, you know, one pip in favor of either chaos or imperial each way. But when you're able to make that second pip step, there's a split choice. So, at either end of the campaign tracker here, there's two potential locations you could end up at, um, which, in the case of, say, chaos, if they won two phases in a row, and were able to get themselves to the end of the track. Um, their alliance could decide to either choose to land on the Fallen to Darkness position, which is worth five strategic victory points to Chaos, or they could choose to go for Key Targets Held, which is only worth four strategic victory points, but the Chaos Alliance gains the Munitions Supply bonus, which in this instance um, states that if an alliance has Munitions Supplies, each time a player from the Alliance plays a battle in the Darovar Mandeville point, which is one of the other two territories, then at the start of the first battle round, that player gains one additional command point. So you can offset one victory point for your Alliance in favor of giving your Alliance plus one command point for games played in that particular territory. That's quite cool. So you could kind of like, like you say, it's a bit more strategic. You can decide if you need command points or you feel like you're kind of like using them, like burning through them quite a lot. You could always kind of decide that you want to go that way, take the extra command point for the next battle. Yeah, it's worth uh, mentioning that this book suggests having like an alliance leader, sort of like a team captain, so that um, that particular individual is going to sort of represent the alliance and make that decision or certainly listen to the voices of their players within their alliance and put the decision forward so that it's not all just dictated specifically by one person who has ultimate control sounds very chaos as well <laughs> I mean it's also true for Imperium sounds very well, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool so then uh, and each of these like little tracker maps are different so for example the Mandeville point itself has that central contested position where no one's in um, ascendance. But the first step um, in either direction is the actual decision step. Uh, and then the second step is the one that like reconnects that pathway of the tree so that um, you end up with the plus four victory points. But you would have also, in theory, had the choice previously to get that particular bonus for that territory. So. There's, each of them has different branching layouts. Like the um, the third one, the, the Gracoloid Narrow, has three different positions in the center. So if you had moved out of the contested neutral position, the Chaos or Imperial forces, if they're winning it back, could choose to 
move to a point where it's actually worth one victory point for them, even though it's relatively contested. Yeah, having the uh, progression sort of maps the points where uh, I guess they're, they're simulating the, the flow of the greatest strategic drive across across more than just the one battle that you're playing. Having them different shapes and you can navigate through them in different ways, I, I think it's, uh, gives it a little bit more sense of that battle being in the, in the wider campaign. I, I rather like these, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of, yeah, like, as you say, your things change and you're th finger out, figuring out what resources you need as you go down the line, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and then each of these um, sort of territories has a little associated um, set of environment rules, as it were, um, to represent fighting in that particular region. Um, but these are just very sort of like minor ones that represent the general concept of the area, such as, you know, the surface of Darabai is the entirety of the planet. You know, it's not necessarily saying it's going to be, you know, one, one single biome, sort of Star Wars style, but <laughs> um, it's as a general rule, if you're fighting on the surface of Darabar, then the rules in effect would be harsh terrain, which means no benefits of cover if a unit moves. Um, Dug-in zealots, so morale bonuses for Chaos Alliance units, and then fiery determination, which is um, Imperial units advance D3 plus 3 on advance rolls rather than just D6. Nice. It's quite nice. Um, and each of these Free Territories has their own sort of mini little benefit um, built into it. Uh, in the Mandeville point of Daravar, the Imperial Alliance always gets to pick the deployment zones, um, but the Chaos Alliance actually gets to make a Seize the Initiative roll on a 5 plus. Interesting. <laughs> that's, that's something that's not in the normal game, isn't it? Yeah, not anymore. No, Seize the Initiative is a, an old mechanic from 8th Ed and previous. It has not existed in 9th as yet. So it's interesting to see it sort of return in a, a minor way here, even though it's twice as likely to happen as it was before. If you, you, yeah, you, yeah, 5 you, plus is not so minor. No. Uh, and in the case of the Gracchiloid Narrow, if your Warlord is on the battlefield, you gain an additional CP in the command phase on a D6 roll of a 4 plus. Um, each of these three territories also has an associated legendary mission, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, and there are returning campaign masters edits. So in this case, it is uh, the full scale bombardment mechanic and actually a new one called Inspiring Command, which is basically everybody gets a free warlord trait to represent the fact that you've got particularly heroic individuals involved in this conflict. So, by which I mean one additional character gets a free warlord trait. <laughs> Not every character. Every <laughs> you get free warlord, warlord traits for everybody. You get a warlord <laughs> trait. You get a warlord trait. You get a warlord trait. Cool. Unfortunately, though, uh, no, new uh, no new campaign badge which seems to be a thing that's kind of gone the wayside since uh, Charadon. I liked the campaign badges. <laughs> Just a small thing, but I liked having my Rift War campaign badge on my units. But I can always uh, create one myself, I suppose. They've shown you the way now. You can make your own. <laughs> um, and then within the campaign rules, there are six new Crusade relics, three for each alliance. Um, now I'll let Adam pick one from the uh, Imperial Alliance. Which would you like to hear about, Adam? Do you want to hear about the Light of Sister Geometra? 
the vial of blessed tears or the ashes of Saint Cervantes Goldenhelm. Let's go with the vial of blessed tears. So this is an Imperial Alliance model only. In your command phase, select one friendly unit within six inches of the bearer. Until the start of your next command phase, each time that unit is selected to shoot or fight, you can re-roll one hit roll, you can re-roll one wound roll, and you can re-roll one damage roll when resolving that unit attacks. Nice. It's pretty handy. So it's a yeah. The damage yeah. rolls are quite nice touch on that. Anyway. Yeah, especially when you yeah. want to. Just kind of like if you get that low roll and you want to do a lot of damage and that kind of just for it like quite important in that moment to do it. Is there any restrictions yeah. on what unit that is? Uh, just a friendly unit. No, oh, it nice. doesn't have to be core or anything like that. It could be anything. Very helpful. Um, but yes, as a death skull player, I lament the loss of my damage reroll, and it's something that we're not seeing a ton of in ninth edition. So beyond the command reroll, it's definitely a useful little thing there. Uh, Dave, would you like to read out one of the Chaos ones for us? We've got the choices of the Pendant of Rockrass the Damned, the Warp Blessed Remnant, or the Twilight Orb of Caraxis. I quite like the, the sound of the Twilight Orb of Caraxis. Um, the flavor text says, uh, The origins of this bizarre device are unknown even to the most learned of scholars in being Materium and the Demon. Perfectly smooth, the sphere appears to be hollow, containing an ever-rolling swirl of energy in countless shades of grey. Empiric power radiates from it, blurring the bearer's form to such an extent that they appear to be little more than a mirage, even to those standing right next to them. So, um, I, I quite like the, the, the flare text on this one, because it gives you an idea of how to model it, if you're going to model it into your figures, which is why I chose to read that. The funny um, thing that, the funny thing that comes to mind for me for that is... Um, Neville Longbottom's Remember All from Harry <laughs> Potter. The little glass orb with the uh, smoke inside. Yeah, it does sound like it. I, I can't comment. I'm afraid Harry Potter is not my geek, but uh, <laughs> if, you, if it makes sense to you, that's awesome. Yeah, me neither. But I was thinking more like the, the galaxy on, say, like Men in Black, you know, that's around the cut. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Now that, that hits flat flows, my boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, so what, what does it do for us? So, uh, Chaos Alliance model only. Uh, once per battle in your command phase, the bearer can use this relic. If it does, until the start of your next command phase, then each time attack is made against the bearer, subtract one from the attack roll, one from the wound roll, which I think is pretty big. <laughs> uh, each time attack is allocated to the bearer, subtract one from the damage characteristic to a minimum of one. So um, I think that's, uh, that's very good. That's a pretty good if you think you're going to be taking some fire. Uh, from that, that to that unit, and you want to keep them alive just a little bit longer. I think that uh, orb of Caraxes uh, is is one of the things that would be helpful. But it's got to be a Chaos Alliance unit. That's the only thing. <laughs> well, it's essentially beseeching the power of the Dark Master, isn't it? It's the whole yeah. shrouding yourself in shadows and in substantial defenses. So yeah, it makes sense. Uh, you know. Minus uh, hit rolls, wound rolls, and damage stats are very much in Bellacore's ballpark of tricks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lovely. Um, right then, so we'll uh, jump quickly over to the legendary missions, which, um, as always, sort of highlight particular story beats in the narrative within this book, and often provide us with some very interesting missions and unique scenarios, some of which may be appearing in a future Crucible of War. 
I certainly know one aspect of the environments for one of them will be. You mean rather inspired, Harry Tony? Oh, definitely. First up, we have the Seek the Light mission. So this is from the Battling on the Surface of Derivar, or specifically in this case, Battling Below the Surface of Derivar, because this is meant to be a subterranean battle taking place in a, a, a large cave network. And essentially, um, Imperial forces are playing the attacker who are attempting to break out from being trapped on the ground. So they're trying to reach the defender's deployment zones in order to capture them and um, make their escape, because essentially that's where the, the cave exits are going to be. Um, so, deployment. As such, the attacker is in a 12-inch a center line from long table edge to long table edge. Um, and the defender has short table edges, but the defender only has sort of like a little nine inch um, spacing from the center line. So, for players of the earlier GT mission packs, there was a particular mission that had the sort of style deployment where the short table edges you only got to use like a third of it. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was a rather infamous one. <laughs> because basically you didn't get the entire you know, table edge to deploy in and it was as such quite tight. But because of the nature of this mission, you would get that on both sides of the table as the defender. So two sort of bastions of defense that you're trying to defend. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. And then there's a 14 inch no man's land between the attacker's front line and the defender's front line in both directions. There are zero objective markers in this game. Instead, at the start of the first battle round, the attacker selects five of their units to be key units, and the attacker scores 20 victory points per key unit that is wholly within the defender's deployment zone at the end of the game. So it's all about getting those particular, sort of like to the last, you know, targets almost, um, and getting them into those defenders deployment zones alive is the important thing um they don't have to do an action when they get there they don't have to escape off the table and they can be injured they don't have to be like above 50 percent strength or anything like that they just have to be there um and existing uh, and by comparison the defender scores 15 victory points each time a key unit or the enemy warlord is destroyed so if you've got a key unit warlord, then he's going to be worth a whopping 30 victory points if they take him down. Oh, he's <laughs> got a big target on his head thing. <laughs> yeah. So essentially scoring is kind of a bit like, um, you know, like kill points, but it's about killing very particular units, not just any old units from the opponent's army. And it is the attacker themselves who gets to pick which those five units are going to be. So they're going to dictate that decision. And then as the defender, you're trying to destroy those um, key units. I suppose what would be quite interesting with that as well is you'd probably like send in the ones that you haven't made your key units first. So they'd be like the first wave kind of thing, send them down the caves. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can do the maths on it a little bit where you could be willing to sacrifice one or two of the key units so long as you can sort of guarantee the others are going to make it. But... You're right, it certainly incentivizes sending the non-key units first as fodder or 
shock troops, you know, to try to clear the way. It's going to make uh, feeling each of those losses of units really impactful and probably incentivize playing a little cagey with them um, in order to make sure that they, they hang on in there. I can imagine there'll be some games where you've got like lone survivors and squad sergeants or whatever who are from key units and they're frantically trying to die from cover to cover without <laughs> being seen. Just panics and hiding behind walls. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you imagine all those games you've played where you've ended up with one random squad member left and you just think, well, they'll go hide on that objective. Yeah. But what if the objective was right in the middle of the opponent's deployment <laughs> zone and they were the only one that could do it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it's an interesting, you know, sort of goal. Maybe that's where your magical orb would come in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shroud yourself in shadow. Um... So sort of, to add to this, uh, to build on the narrative of being in the underground subterranean cave network, um, this mission does suggest playing with the close confines rule, which basically says that neither player can use units with the flyer battlefield rule, which I guess if you want to create it as accurately as possible, then sure, just don't bring any flyers, because uh, that could be getting very far underground. Um, but... I don't think it mechanically has any big issue so long as you don't make the flyers any of the key units. But then again, they're pretty hard to hide as well, even if you did. I think the other thing that's pretty nice in this mission is as well, it says, you know, use uh, the trap below ground rule as well, which means you can't um, make any moves that allows them to remove from the battlefield apart from it to embark on a transport, and you can't use any reserve rules. So that all makes it a little bit more thematic as well. Yeah, or at least those restrictions are on the attacker. So the defender could place things in strategic reserve or have teleport units or so on. But yeah, the attacker, their entire force is there trapped in the cave and trying to break out. So yeah, like you say, they, they can't place any units in reserve or your deep strike equivalents because they're already there and attempting yeah. to break out. Um, but... As such, their escape is desperate, and the attacker will get the first turn in this mission. So that's another consideration when the defender is trying to set up these uh, defensive strongholds that they're trying to hold on to. Um, and then finally, there is a victor bonus for this if you're playing as a crusade game, in which case, uh, chaos units that destroyed sorry, the chaos units that destroyed the most key units gains free XP, or if the imperial player won, the imperial player gains a bonus requisition point. So, some nice little incentive bonuses there for whether it's the Chaos or Imperial player who ends up winning the day. But I think three, that's a three XP can make quite a lot of difference in Crusade, I think, as well. Yeah, it can. Um, and the other thing to consider is that if you're playing this mission, then in theory you're playing on the surface of Derivar, which means you would be playing with um, no cover benefits for units that move, which is going to be a detriment to the attacker. But also, um, attackers' units would be advancing D3 plus 3 for the whole game, rather than just D6. So you're not playing on the surface of Derivar, are we? Well, it depends. Is it one of the many layers of surface? I think it still qualifies as being part of the crust of the planet. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I can't remember the reason for those rules. 
Um, I mean, part of it is just meant to represent the fact that basically Daravar as a planet is sort of like a mountainous, barren, rocky world, but it's also like heavily cavernous, and a lot of the fighting was uh, done underground. Think the War of Kalf um, from the Horus Heresy series, where it's like all fighting underground because the surface of the world is quite barren. Um, so it's a, a harsh environment to be combating in. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Quite like the idea of kind of setting up a table for it to like think about it being in caves as well, like, like lots of maybe like narrow choke points and uh, kind of corridors yeah. to go down and stuff. I've always liked the idea of them using the sort of tall rock pillars that they had at like tabletop events where that sort of represents the pillars that go up to the ceiling of yeah. your cave. So you've, you've got some height that's a bit more than literally being over the heads of your space marines. You know, it is a cavern they're fighting in, but it still feels like a sort of close, confined space. Um, if you wanted, you could possibly even create sort of like, like you were saying, rocky corridors and confines, a bit um, so Mortalis style, but in a more natural occurring formation than ship interiors. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of ship interiors, uh, our next legendary mission is the Scorched Stars. And this is meant to represent a battle taking place in the interior of an Imperial spaceship that is um, engaged in the Void Battle that happens at the uh, Mandible Rally Point or whatever it was. Uh, because basically it's when the Chaos Fleet appears and engages in combat with the Imperial Fleet. Now, let me just read... If I know, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let Dave read the, uh, the fluff description for this mission because it is somewhat incredibly 40k. Do you want the designer's note as well? Uh, go on then. Okay, so the mission briefing first. <clears throat> a chaos ship in possession of a great tooth-lined maw has seized a mighty imperial vessel, slowing, slowly consuming the warship. With little left to lose and a determined to ensure that determination to ensure that no other Imperial Navy ship suffers the same fate, the crew strive to detonate their munition stores and warp drive to destroy their predatory foe. <laughs> so to, they've been attacked, they're doomed to die, and they're, they're determined to, to kill uh, the attacker. So designers note, the mission takes place deep within the bowels of an Imperial vessel. As such, we recommend using a dense collection of industrial scenery when setting up the battlefield to represent the enough manufacturing and maintenance bays of the warship. Which I think is, it gives you the sort of thematic area that you, this, these fights take place in. But let's not undersell the point that this is a chaos vessel with a giant maw. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in those many sort of like scenic scenes and artworks where you've seen Tyranid you know, space vessels sort of literally clamping on and trying to chew through Imperial cruisers. It's that, but it's a mechanical demon-possessed chaos vessel that is now, like, crushing its way through the, you know, layers of the ship as it's trying to literally devour it. Sounds epic. <laughs> it's a ridiculous. <laughs> so, in terms of how this mission actually plays out, it's pretty standard sort of deployment and objectives. It's uh, long table edges, 24-inch no man's land, pretty all standard Dawn of War stuff. There are four objective markers. They are laid out in a sort of cross pattern, all in no man's land, but slightly off-center. The distances it sets out is that 
Uh, from the center point, there are two objectives that are both 15 inches down the long end of the table. And there's two, which in theory would have been like six inches in each direction from the center point. Except that this is all offset by two inches. So one objective is four inches towards the attacker's deployment zone. And the other one is eight inches towards the defenders. And those two that are 15 inches off in sight the other direction are two inches back from the center line. So it's just, so just a little bit closer to the defender's deployment zone. Yeah, just a little bit. Again, we've got the close confine rules where neither army uh, should be bringing any units with a flying battlefield role. But again, I don't think it's actually too detrimental to the nature of the mission if you were to bring them and you just fancy playing this not in a spaceship interior but with some other narrative beat. That would be fine. Um... We also have the rig to blow rule. So this is where defenders, infantry units can perform an action to rig an objective to blow, and the attacker can uh, roll defuse, and the attacker can roll to defuse any objective markers that they control in their command phase on a d6 roll of a three plus. So it's interesting how it's not just get there and hold the objectives. The defender is actually trying to rig them to blow, which is an action but the attacker can attempt to defuse any that are rigged, but that is not an action. That's a command phase roll. Interesting. Okay. So just you roll wrong, action. it's like you cut the wrong wire and... <laughs> yeah. Grab uh, the card and run. Uh, there isn't any actual detrimental effect to failing that roll. I oh, assume okay. the idea is they just uh, haven't made their mind up yet which wire to cut. <laughs> <laughs> um... And as with the previous mission, there is a predetermined first turn. In this case, this is the defender has the first turn, presumably because it's their ship and the invaders are, you know, busy deploying from the ravenous moor. Um, players score based on how many objective markers are rigged to blow at the end of the game. Um, so this is one way, you know, like if, if there's zero rigged, then the attacker scores 90 points. If all four are rigged, the defender scores 90 points. And there's, you know, increments of scoring in between that, depending on how many are rigged to blow by the end of the game. But the real sort of gimmick of this mission is the sort of environment rule, which represents the fact that the boundaries of the battlefield have been physically crushed by the jaws of the enemy vessel. Oh, it's so epic, this one, isn't it? I can just imagine, I'm just imagining all these teeth and jaws and things just kind of like devouring. Yeah, I've got shit. this image of sort of like a giant demonic maw, but the actual, like, instead of fangs, it's got sort of, like, rotary saws or something mm, like that, something yeah. very mechanical in nature, but it's emulating a, you know, a, a crushing, jumping maw. It's giving me visions of the, I know this is chaos, but the, um, the orc attack moons from the 33rd millennium. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a similar vein, isn't it? Um, so how this manifests in game is the grinding destruction rule. So this is at the start of the battle round, for each unit on the battlefield, if that unit is within soaring range of any battlefield edges, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. Now, in the first battle round, that's three inches from the table edge. And then in round two, yeah, that's six inches from the table edge. And then progressively, each round it becomes nine inches, 12 inches, and 15 inches from the table edge, which in some instances, That'll be deeper than the actual deployment zone by the end of the game. <laughs> that does feel very crushing as well, doesn't it? Like it's kind of like 
really just pushing you all into the middle as well. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it's creating a very small area in the middle. <laughs> yeah, so it's not that the board is physically compacting in that you are forbidden from moving to a certain zone within the table, but if you are too close to the edge, every unit that is too close is going to suffer D3 mortal wounds, which progressively every single turn, that is going to make it very hard for units, especially mid and late game, to survive being near those table edges. But there's more, because there's a second state to this, which is grinding range, which is if that unit is also within grinding range of any battlefield edges, that unit suffers an additional D3 mortal wounds. So this is basically representing the fact that you are not just on the edges of it now, you are fully in there, in amongst the fangs and the grinding gears and everything that's just chewing the ship up. Because in rounds one and two, that's zero inches. There's no grinding range until turn three, at which point then in turns three, four, and five, that is three, six, and nine inches of the table edge. So if you are really hanging back and not getting stuck in there, you're going to be taking 2d3 mortal wounds in the later stages of the game. See someone with like, uh, I don't know, indirect fire weapons, so they're going to be really shafted and forced to move. Yep. And my favourite part about this is that the grinding destruction rule is itself very modular and isn't tied de dedicatedly to any particular mechanics of this mission and as such yells at me environmental rules and could easily be picked out and applied to any other mission. Specifically, probably some in a future Crucible of War mission pack. <laughs> I, I got my fingers crossed already. <laughs> So yeah, I love this grinding destruction rule. I think it's a very clever way of representing shrinking uh, battle size in a 40k game without physically having to move terrain and tiles and stuff like that. Yeah, you could quite use this for any faction as well. Like say, if you with Tyranids, you could imagine it, or even like um, Dave said before with like the orcs and stuff. I so mean, you have to kind of add your own to it. It's a uh... It's kind of very uh, player unknown's environmental battlefield effects. It's very <laughs> Fortnite Storm. You know, it's just the battlefield is shrinking, head to the centre, or suffer the consequences. Whatever reason you want to come up with for why there is some deadly, hazardous, borderline thing in encroaching upon you, then there's been many, many re narrative reasons for what that could be. Trash compactor. <laughs> oh, it could be the uh, the closing jaws of the Orc Mountains and Octarius after you've been pitched into the uh, underworkings yeah. of the Mechanical Mountains. <laughs> All sorts of stuff. So, moving on quickly now to the last legendary mission, uh, appropriately named Last Stand. So, this one, again... Standard Dawn of War style deployment, long table edges, 24 inch no man's land. However, for this mission, we have six objective markers, four of them in no man's land, this time in a standard and actually centralized box layout. So, you know, it's sort all of four corners forming a, a square, um, 18 inches from the center line and on the long edge, and six inches from the center line on the short edges. So, square box of evenly sped spread objective markers and then in addition to that there's also one objective marker that is front and center of each player's deployment zone 
Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, we then have the commit all forces fight to the last rule, which means that it costs zero CP for players to put units into strategic reserves for this game. However, at least half of their armies must be deployed on the battlefield at the start of the game. So interesting to see that you can choose to put as many things in that you know, strategic outflank sort of maneuvering as you would like for no CP investment. Yeah, that's, not, that's an interesting change. Nah, I usually kind of like like to put things in strategic reserve sometimes, especially like say for like Death Dread or something like that, you know what I mean? That you really want to get that charge off, but imagine like having quite a lot of units been able to do that for free. It's like a really good bonus. I like the sound of that. I mean, I think it'll help create this sense of attacking in waves as well. If both players have got several units, potentially up to half their armies in strategic reserves, waiting to be committed to the field. Um, and given how sort of close to some of the short table edges four of these objective markers are, given the large box layout, there's going to be some real opportunities to sort of snag these objectives by coming in from the flanks. But there is actually an additional wrinkle to this, which is the attack swiftly, give them nothing special rule. <laughs> so, in addition to the usual table edges that players can set up units in strategic reserve from, you can also set them up anywhere on the battlefield that is wholly within six inches of an objective marker that they control. So basically, if you've got control of an objective marker, you still have to abide by the you have to be so far away from any units and all that, but you could almost sort of like deep strike your strategic reserve units onto objective markers that you are controlling. That's cool. I like that. So your death dread doesn't have to just come stomping on from the table edge. He could suddenly appear on that objective marker that's right in front of their deployment zone if you've sort of secured that landing zone for him, you know, almost. Kind of gives you like a nice incentive to go for the objective that you want to that turn as well, like or the turn before then to bring that in next time. Yeah, sort of really securing your beachhead in that particular instance. Although I've been fairly recently played uh, Adam's uh, Gene Stealer Cult, that makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can do that already. It's going to make me nervous, the fact that everyone else can be using my tricks against me. <laughs> <laughs> True. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Yeah, it would be very scary having the... Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of units in the game that would be very scary to just suddenly turn up on your uh, front lines rather than having to come from reserves. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is the fact that um, they can also act as like actual reserves where um, one particular flank might be getting harassed and the enemy thinks they've sort of seized it off you, but all of a sudden, if you have units that can then sort of deep strike in on an adjacent objective marker, they can sort of re-establish that front line of engagement. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Like reserves being sort of teleported or dropped in by uh, gunships and stuff, it's cool. And then, interestingly, we also have the Righteous Inspiration rule, which is just a fun little extra one, but something a little unusual, where essentially units sort of like level up once they've destroyed an enemy unit. So um, once any given unit has destroyed an enemy unit, it gains uh, sixes to wound, improve their AP by one. So, 
so yeah, it's just an extra little thing. Maybe you do bother with it, maybe you don't if it's a little extra bookkeeping, but essentially once everything gets its first kill tally, it then gets uh, plus one AP on sixes to wound against all its extra attacks for the rest of the game. So it basically becomes a bad moon. <laughs> yeah. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I mean, I suppose arguably it would stack in the case of the bad moons because it's two different rule sources. So mm. if you roll a six to wound, you'd be getting plus two AP on that given attack. Which could be nice for the armor of contempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good answer to armor of contempt. Um, and then finally, in terms of scoring, this is pretty standard. It's, you know, um, players score by holding objectives and it's five points for controlling one or more, two or more, and more than the opponent. Uh, and there's additionally some end game scoring where it's worth five victory points for each objective marker a player controls at the end of the game. Uh, and then finally, victor bonus for this particular mission if you're playing Crusade is that um, the winner gets to gain an additional battle honor for one of their units. So, a free upgrade. Always nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, that can yeah. help XLR, like you were saying earlier. The, the 3 XP can be useful. That's <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> yeah, because you might even get a unit that levels up and then you yeah. get technically get like two, which is quite. Yeah, I've certainly had that happen before. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Uh, so, yeah, so that is the War of Desperation campaign, complete with its new slew of legendary missions. And. Uh, I think there's some interesting options in there. Uh, I think extending on the uh, sort of tree system for territory control is interesting, where there's decisions to be made. Um, I think some of the legendary missions have some particularly interesting scoring methods or environment effects. I will no doubt be setting up some games in future with crushing jaws and grinding destruction. <laughs> Definitely. I think uh, I can see why you've been inspired to use some of these rules for uh, the next Crucible of War. Uh, just like when we reviewed uh, missions and scenarios and, and war zones in the past, which effectively we've got war zone light uh, in, in these different uh, um, narrative campaign zones. I think uh, being able to pick these out and build them into your own campaign system is, is just as exciting as the possibility of actually playing through some of these. Although. I must confess, I'm kind of tempted to try and see whether I can't persuade somebody to do the, the Graculoid narrow. I quite like that uh, backwards and forwards control for a, a section of the... What's the big rift called? <laughs> the Natchmund Gauntlet. Yeah, to holding back the forces from the Natchmund... Uh, of chaos from the Natchmund Gauntlet and trying to hold the line until the reinforcing mm. troops can come. Uh, that, yeah. that kind of appeals to me, especially since I'm a, a sort of... I quite enjoy the last stand sort of mission and even though I'm a terrible player, as we all know, and I'll just lose, the, the idea of running through it and playing it is, is absolutely uh, exciting. Yeah, I think that kind of like pushing back and forth, kind of um, holding like a defensive position and then trying to get like yourself ahead and the, um, like you say, the back and forth. I think I, I do really like that element to games. So uh, that, that mission definitely um, sounded good to me. Like. I mean, I think that this is one of the reasons why this Warzone supplement in particular feels like the most sort of like historic narrative um, telling of a particular event we've had so far in a supplement book because you're exactly right. This isn't just a large scale conflict across an entire sector of space in Charadon or Octarius. This is a progressive war being fought by Harkin Wolflamer 
going from point A to point B across the rift, accumulating in the battle at the uh, Sanctus Wall, which is yeah. the last stand battle. And I think playing as a player group um, through this campaign and doing each of your campaign phases um, will actually feel like there's that very deliberate navigation through the rift, that sort of progression of the story over the two, three months that you play it, accumulating in this big last stand that it's going to feel like not just a, a conclusion to a campaign but an actual destination that the story has reached and uh, I think that's something that is presented very well in this book uh, more so than the settings that the other campaigns previously have been this is more a dedicated story Yeah, I know what you mean about that historical kind of thing. I, I've, I've yet to read all of the, the fluff at the beginning of this, and there's, there's quite a few more pages than, than you sometimes get. There's a good uh, 15, 20 pages of uh, background uh, information, which I love, and I, it helps me build the stories out of it. And I'm looking forward to reading that. But um, I, I think bringing that together with um, with what we just talked about there, I think that, that gives it more of the flavor of like when you if, you, if you've ever done historical wargaming, recreating the you know uh, some of those classic battles that we've seen we know what they play out but how is it how is it different if you bring the armies if you're the general uh, yeah definitely the normandy beach landings or the um you know the um the the the, the very small number of greeks against the um, persians or you know uh, the the attack in the Teutonberg forest or you know those classic uh, real-world historical games. I, I do like that flavour that this brings uh, to 40k as well. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a, a great sort of way to just round out this first part of our Rift War coverage. And talking of stories and histories and tales, you might say, um, it is about time that we move on quickly to our first ever Tales from the Crucible segment with Mr. Daniel Foley, who is going to be recounting his own tales from the Crucible of War. And uh, yeah, that should hopefully be a nice little interlude for people listening at home. And we'll be back with more Rift Ball coverage right after Daniel has uh, regaled us with his own tales from the Crucible. You get listen up now, listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up Good and proper, you hear me? Right. Narrative War Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right, you gits. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the penguin. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get some extra special.
You are about to hear of another way to play Warhammer 40,000 beyond that which is known to the ITC. A gameplay experience not only of victory points and match results, but of narrative. A tale of deadly battlefields, tactical challenges, and narrative scenarios. Welcome, dear listener, to the latest installment of Tales from the Crucible. So guys, um, welcome back to what is the first of a very special series of segments that we're going to be doing on the show for the next couple of weeks, months, or however long. Um, and that is the first of the Tales from the Crucible. So tonight, I am joined by Mr. Daniel Foley. Hello. So Daniel, um, we didn't actually get you on um, last episode for the main sort of like review episode of the podcast. Uh, of the podcast. No, that's the other thing I do. That's this. No, the review of the um, uh, the event uh, of the Crucible Ball, but that's because of you know scheduling and all the rest of it. But it's not a problem because that means we can just have a wonderful one to one instead. I I I really enjoyed it. It was it was a a jolly good event where I got to roll some dice and do some things and use some units that I would never normally use, and I got to use them and I got to use my Death Strike and it was amazing. <laughs> good. So, um, for the listeners then, I'm hoping that having probably listened to the last episode, people will have, you know, got the gist of the different journeys that each player at the event will have taken in terms of the three different missions that they played. So, if anyone's listened to that previous episode and listening to this now, they'll be aware of the three different games that uh, Dave Barker and Adam Boise played um, on their day. Um, and now, tonight, we're going to hear about your three games as well. Um, as well as a little bit of your like say, overall impression of the event and um, sort of like a little bit of the, um, the pre-event day build-up and a little bit of the aftermath and wrap-up and all the rest of it. Um, so we're just going to have a chat about your day and um, hopefully people will start seeing how everyone there has kind of had a slightly different experience and a unique perspective and in no way has it just been the same thing that all, you know, all the players on the day. No, and that, and that, that, that was the best thing about it was not having the same game three and like not even so being a I'm going to say it a regular tournament player, you do get into almost like going through the motions when you go to tournament tournaments. So it's like turn up, put models down. Yeah, technically the mission's slightly different, but it is basically just find find the marker and sit on the marker. Um, whereas this was like. Um, this was much each game was i mean especially the last one was stupendously different um just from a i mean i went from it i'll start sorry i'm already rambling but the um so the way i i looked at from even designing the army it was i made it an artillery company because i was like i want to take artillery i don't want to i took no lehman rosses because i wanted to take something yeah. thematic so, um, i guess it, it's worth pointing out at this point that as you know um as Cadian Dan, as we often know you, you brought decided to bring your Cadians to this event, didn't you? Yes, I did, and they I did think. fantastically badly. In a <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the most fantastic way. In the most fantastic way, like I, my aim was to fire the Death Strike once. I fired it twice, which I was very happy about. Um, and like starting with the first game. 
Um, I can start. With, I suppose I'll start at the beginning with the first well, game. So, so yeah. So actually, to be honest, what I was going to suggest was, um, how about we start before the first game and okay. talk briefly about um your impressions about like the format, the event pack, and like getting there on the day, if that makes sense. You know, so what the the venue, everything about the nature of the event. So I would say that it's one of the best venues i've been to outside of gw stuff yeah, like it's, Warhammer World. it's great isn't it for um the tables were outstanding um to the point where i was slightly jealous i didn't have a big warehouse with a load of tables in that have really nice terrain it was just it it was and what was nice is that all of the tables because they match the missions um it was it was really good to see sort of like oh wow i want to play on the lava flow one because it's you know there's the lava flow but it actually looked like a lava flow and even the first one where i played on where it was supposed to be ice uh, like a glacier or something we just changed it to be like oh it's a dust storm instead it's it's quite it was quite fun yeah that was about the the one thing which uh, we unfortunately we just couldn't quite do with um the range of tables they had there so um, this was at Tabletop Events, and it was thanks to um, James and Ed who uh, run the, the venue, and there's a spectacular range of tables they had available, and unfortunately uh, an ice or snow table was about the only thing that we just couldn't quite uh, pull together for the day, but the nature of the scenario worked fine, that just rather than being um, an avalanche in a snowstorm, it's just a rock slide in a dust storm. Yeah, it, um, it didn't matter. Didn't it, it still, I mean, that one thematically was basically. I'll get onto that later because that was that was that was fun. But the um, the gen, generally the venue was amazing. The people there were that, that was nice as well. Meeting people there and sort of because they're not my regular gaming crowd, it was nice to see. I always like going to events. Doesn't matter if it's a tournament or a or something like this where you get to just see people's interpretation of 40k because everyone's got their own style their own look their own feel what the universe means to them and it's just nice to see like you you go there and you think oh, i didn't think of that that's a great idea or oh that's really cool i've seen this and 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 the way that people bring their armies to life um or ideas that they have and I know the the chap, and you're gonna have to do the names because I'm really bad with names. The chap who did the orc army that won the best painting with a really gorgeous orc army. Um, yeah, that that was uh, Mr. Darren Wright. It was it was just like that's so cool. It was it was a proper orc army. It was it wasn't standard. It wasn't uniform. It was really nice. You look at it and go, yeah, I could imagine seeing that. That that would that would terrify me if it turned up and it was all grimy and greasy and then you got that contrasted with the the 80s neon necrons that i played which i absolutely loved and a shout out to that person as well because it was just mm-hmm. like hitting all the yeah. 80s and uh all i could hear is exactly. the in the background is a um a synthesizer soundtrack as we were playing just it was so fantastic that was um jonathan sharp i believe yeah it was yeah yeah so oh, i was just it was just fun and I didn't yeah. stop talking to people, which is, you know, not a problem for me. But it was, uh, it it's was a good really sign, nice. Isn't it? I mean, it's funny how you mentioned about this being a real opportunity for people to sort of really showcase what the hobby is to them, and you know, and how they 
you know love to interact with this hobby and this universe and how to sort of demonstrate that to the other people around them and to help bring them into you know their hobby for a day it's funny because you say that and that's the exact impression and the goal that i had as the event organizer like that's the whole deal of the crucible of war it really is sort of showcasing my vision of what the hobby can be and i'm so glad that you know people have really taken to it and really enjoyed it i mean the other thing the other that we would you talked about the feelings you got before but my feeling afterwards was that it there wasn't a sense of because because no one was out there to prove anything that was that was that was the, the thing i found no one's here to prove anything we all play 40k we're all moving bits of plastic around on a table we're all saying doing silly things and blowing up big weapons and doing you know using yeah, no, no one's armies. gunning for best general and no one's gunning for bombs. anything so everyone kind of the atmosphere was really relaxed and no one because there was no one trying to get anything or win anything it was really relaxed and you could just actually play the game with a conversation over the top of it so it was it it's the first event and i'm i would put myself in a quick as a quick player and i play guard and i can finish a i can finish a 2k game with guard in in less than two hours i can do that i do it on a regular basis it's the first time i've never managed to finish a game at an event because <laughs> I've, I've, I've we've just been chatting about the the silly things that were happening or or you know x y and z was happening and oh no i've lost this many men to some rock fall or whatever that was happening at the time i don't resent that at all so out of interest then since you mentioned you like timings and everything um in the event pack for this um the the schedule for this event uh, included a 10 to 15 minute uh, like mission briefing period at the start of each round for basically four players to have the chance to uh, read the, their missions and their scenarios and the environment rules they're going to be playing with um, because it's all non-standard stuff. Chances mm. are it's something they've not seen before or even if they have seen it, they've probably not actually played with it before. So that was something I introduced because I figured it would be really beneficial for people to be able to have that little window to just acclimatize to what they're about to spend the next two and a half hours playing. Yeah. How it did you find that? Definitely needed it it definitely <laughs> needed it because of the but i actually didn't find that as useful as something else that you did but you probably are aware you did it but it was actually more useful than the 15 minutes which is actually and it's a really simple thing to do and obviously you planned it so you are aware but the having the special rules on the table all the time just so you could go this is happening that was very yes. helpful <laughs> yeah just really... having actual printouts of the yep. mission um you know yep. here's the mission rules and then on a separate piece of paper next to it and here's the environment rules yeah that um, was rather really than having yeah rather than having to refer to a book or a publication on a certain page if looking backwards and forwards between yep. all the time um <laughs> yes because that that there were amounts basically what i found happening with that uh the first game i found it quite difficult to keep referring to it just i had to get my brain into it was early in the morning but i had to get my brain into remembering there's this particular rule but the the last the two games after i was like okay let's stop in the command phase let's just refer back to before we started the next turn because it was just a good way of almost like an extra phase really um 
It's the environmental death explosion phase. Hooray! It's yeah. The, it's the I'm going to pick my guardsmen off the table phase. Yeah. Isn't that every phase? It is every phase. It is. So <laughs> um, but yeah, good because that, that's something which um, I mentioned in the conversation last episode with um, Dan and Adam, uh, Dan and Dave and Adam, um, was that. Um, game one seemed to be the game that took the longest to one sort of for players to play through and two it was the one where as i was running around from table to table just checking in on people seeing how things were going it was um the round where the most oh we haven't done that yet oh we forgot about that oh let's just do that now or, yeah. oh yeah thanks for reminding us about that and i can tell it was after game one and at the start of round two was when people had sort of really got into the headspace of it they'd it clicked and they're like i get what we're doing even though the mission yeah might be it, it needed it almost like we we almost needed and this is completely impractical so you're not gonna be able to do this it almost needed like a practice game just with invite like if you yeah. do another one i would recommend and people cut go or come to it i would recommend not playing a particular scenario but playing with environmental rules just any environmental rules just yeah. so you remember to use them that would be yeah. the, the only thing I would say to people is just so you remember, oh, these are environmentals because it's so easy to forget. Um, some of the missions, they're integral to the mission, so it's it's less e it, like you need yeah, to do like them. Yeah, like the dam busting actually... scenario. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in the first game, I missed there was something we missed out a couple of times. It was the, it was the cages that were eating guardsmen. Um, <laughs> uh, the wildlife that you were trying to protect. The wildlife, yeah. yeah I think we missed it, that out a predatory couple of, creatures. A couple of goes. Um, and it was just, just good to sort of go through and go, oh, yeah, we've got yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, I do definitely think it might be the kind of event which, I mean, given the nature of it, um, one that has a good lot of return replayability value if we do get people who want to come to it again. Yeah. And secondly, I think it's going to be a thing where you'll become almost a bit of a, a veteran of the format. Yes, I, th I think that's then... the issue. It's because most people don't play that format. They're just unfamiliar with it. They're just completely unfamiliar with doing it. And and the thing is, yes, you can have like, it, yes, it can skew the game. It can skew the game. Um, but not often, but and not who by cares? much. But the, the, yeah. that's, I mean, that that's I would go for. You, that's what you're here for. It's it's yeah. not. It's you, who cares? You, the I, the fact that my guardsmen in the first scenario were, were twelve inches away from a tyrannid monster swarm, I thought was hilarious, <laughs> because it's like, well, I'm not gonna survive the first round of combat because it's just gonna, and it was fun just to see how hard, how, how yeah. long I could hold them, hold them off. And um, I tell you what, your first game generated some brilliant-looking photos. Like, it yep. was such a gorgeous-looking game and really thematic-looking scenario that, yeah, um, it, it, and it looked like an amazing game of 40k. Yeah, it was. And it was. And what was funny was that it was one of those games of 40k where you were like, this is like this film, which may or may not include bug references and and uh, I'm doing my part and that kind of thing. Just for, yeah, it was... It was <laughs> and troopers it was, from Starships. Yeah, I mean the the mission itself. It was a cross in my head. It was a cross between Starship Troopers and Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes, yeah, it kind of it was given that you were playing um, Guard versus Tyranids, definitely. Yes. Yeah, but also um, the mission was meant to represent like wildlife, like predatory creatures that you were trying to protect 
from being eaten by the tyranids so they couldn't um, consume their like uh, one predatory biological you know dangerousness and yeah. two that the idea was their their local knowledge of the planet you know and obviously like how to be the, the apex predator within that environment um i it was it was it was quite a nice it was it was one of those scenarios where i'm like if i had any other army i'd really really be like this would be like really nicely matched up i was like I've got a guard artillery company and most of my infantry are just sat in the middle of the table drawing inches from these nids. Oh well, let's throw everything out we can. And I oh. think it, it, it was so funny. It was yeah. it was so funny. The um I mean so the key thing with that particular scenario is the fact that all the objectives on the table started behind your entire army. Yes. So you didn't yeah. start on a table edge, you started like twelve inches from a table edge and had like a line of deployment. And, and he had to. He had to get. You. Yeah, he had to get through my army to get the objective markers. Um, yes. Which wasn't as easy as it looked when it first yes. started. Because it's like I had a lot of guardsmen. Um, I can't remember how many exactly. I think it was along the line of it was a platoon plus white shield, so it was definitely over eighty models. <laughs> but I don't know how many more over 80 models it was. That was just infantry as well. So, it, yeah. Um, and it was a case of how many white shield can I chuck at um, a horror specs? And the answer is all of them. Is... <laughs> but was it enough? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. Because um, it was the first time I got to try out the new, um, the new guard rules as well. The, the, yeah, the, the hammer of the emperor, or whatever. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> from a, from a sort of, oh, I'm actually doing some damage now. Um, but basically, the game started off almost like my, 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 my thematic plan was there was almost like a valley in the center, like a, a bottleneck in the center yeah. of the map, uh, the table. And I quite like the idea of trying to... The plan, quote-unquote, was to get all of his monsters stuck in combat with my white shield and just hope that I rolled a six on my death strike missile and fire <laughs> at the centre of the table, wiping everything out. Unfortunately, the Tyranids had other ideas. And um, it was... It was I got to see the the. This is the thing. I got to see so many cool things. So like, I got to see the new um, parasite of Malad, whatever Morphic. it is. Yeah, Morph. Yeah, that was cool. And it was jumping about, doing some things. And then the artillery company were like hammering in. I mean, the first. It was just awesome to see. It, it just looked cool. It was. Ju it just looked like this is my last stand i know i'm going to die but we're going to give a hell of a fight and then it was just like big explosions and ended with the death strike missile going off on my first game yes that was <laughs> so yeah so you, you came away from you know game one um and you you've You've had this first sort of real, you know, like cinematic experience with these Tyranids now where you, you definitely very much felt like you were not playing a match play GT mission. Definitely. You know, but, but again, you had a hell of a time for it. That wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> that was yeah. a good thing. It yeah, was... that's the point. Yeah. 
it was it was really good and it was what was nice at the end of it like again I'm, I'm comparing to tournaments because what I'm used to but at, at the end of a tournament what you usually find is you you almost replay the game verbally so you go oh this happened and then this happened and it's like analysis thing you didn't do that with this what you did was we got to do bugs and explosions and there was this thing where it blew up and it was just it, it just basically um uh, dissolved into um, or divolved into uh, whatever the word is to just look at the explosions and that guy died and like I lost loads of guys in a rubble and then this missile went off and that horror ate a load of people and it was great that that was what it turned yeah. into it was nice one of the fundamental ideas I had when creating the format was that um, I wanted to change that common place experience for a group of friends attending an event where after round one, where you normally all get back together and then you talk about how you all played the mission, how your games went, and, and the differences in the conversation is about how you all played that mission slightly differently with your armies or you know, or, the, or the opponents you're playing against and so on. But for this event, that experience would be all three of them would get back together and they'd talk about the three completely different games they all just played, not just how they all played the same one slightly differently. Also, the table felt like a third player. That was yes. the that was the other thing you had, which was you were talking about that. Oh, what happened in your mission? Oh, well, this this happened, and the, and um, like I lost a load of guys due to rubble going down. And then I know uh, Dave had one where he was he had to uh, like stop some trees from being cut down or something like that. I can't remember the exact. Yeah. Uh, exact mission, but it was like we on the way home. We weren't talking about what the other. <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about what the other armies had, but we were talking about that. Oh, this mission was really strange, and we had to do this, and, and they, they all, so it was almost like a, a third player. Yeah, you were talking more about the mission and the environment than the opposing army that yes. you played in. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That's um so obviously you you broke for lunch and then we sort of got back uh, for start round two and um, pairings were listed again. How did you find the um, the concept of being assigned the roles of attacker and defender? Um, for this sort of thing, it's a it's it's a must. It is a must. Yeah. and it needs to be done sensitive. I know this sounds really sort of like I'm going into in, really, it needs to be done sensitively and with a lot of respect. But gen it, it genuinely needs to be done carefully because you could end up like yes we're all that's that's the fine balance yes we're all here for narrative play but what you don't want to have is still not have an aspect of actually you know you don't want a, a game where you're just getting annihilated and there's no yes. interaction and what you did because i know you paired i know you paired everyone up specifically um i i mean from my own personal experience i had three fairly um not balanced that's the wrong word but but sort of the games were very interesting. It didn't feel like one person was just running away with it for, and there wasn't any interaction. It wasn't like, oh, I'm dead first turn. Oh, well, shall we? Because that would be pointless, wouldn't it? You go to a yeah. narrative event and suddenly you've been wiped out first turn. You don't actually get to experience the narrative. The narrative is you lying cold in the ground. Yeah, so the aim was that everyone would have a good game every round, even if it didn't feel like it was necessarily... 
um, again, to, to use the phrase, a balanced, but only purely because... I don't like... Yeah, it doesn't work. It, it's It's been hijacked by competitive play, that. Yeah. Balance Because they effectively, they, they were balanced matchups, i.e. both these armies look like they should have a good game against each other, a game with some yep. engagement and some toing and throwing and a good range of weapons that can sort of, like, have a good fight with each other. Yeah. Um, like... I mentioned last episode, I didn't put um, Adam's GSC against the Imperial Knights because his army mostly had, like, flamers, auto guns, yep. and most of his anti-tank and heavy armor would be, um, like, aberrants in combat and stuff like that. Like, he wasn't going to be geared out to have a good game against the Imperial Knights, no, no matter the scenario. Yeah. The and other thing, I, I don't know, if, again, if you were just lucky with it, was the fact I didn't play a single Imperial player. <laughs> and I liked that. I'm glad you've said that because yes, I planned out every matchup for the day across all three rounds, um, and I set it up so that the one there were no imperial versus imperial games all day on any table, and two there was no mirror matches, so there was no same race versus same race, unless it was something that could have made sense. For example, I would have allowed the Orc players to fight each other, or if there'd been multiple Chaos players, they could have yeah, potentially fought say each chaos other. Would work as well. um, but we actually didn't need to do that on the day, so that was great. Um, and um, everyone roughly played an even spread of opponent types, so if they were an Imperial player, they tended to play against um, either a Chaos opponent and two Xenos. Um, but the Xenos would be different, so it'd be like Orcs and Necrons, or like Tyranids and Eldar, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and if you were a Xenos or Chaos player, you typically played against, it could have been like two Imperials and then a Xenos or Chaos, or it could have been one of each. Yeah. But again, you wouldn't have played the same Xenos race, and if you played two Imperials, you'd have played something like Imperial Knights and or, and Guard. Marines or Guard, or, yeah. 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 Or you might have played Custodes and um, Death Watch or something. Yeah. You'd like, you wouldn't have just played Blood Angels and then played Space Wolves next game. Yeah, because that wouldn't have been... I mean, it would have been alright, but... So I was really pleased that I was able to make every matchup make narrative sense in the universe. Um, so there was none of these space marines fighting space marines in a training exercise. <laughs> you know, many um, many lives were lost in this training exercise. No, no, any imperial force versus imperial guard, and clearly the imperial guard are traitors or renegades for whatever reason. I always think the custodies are personally, but there you go. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on that fact that you didn't actually play another Imperial player. Yeah, it was it was really nice. Um, the it was it, it can be a bit like immersion breaking when you're like, oh good, I'm playing Marines again, and uh, <laughs> obviously I'm the bad guy again because you you know that's what you do when you collect Imperial Guard. You you want to be the baddies. That's the... <laughs> um, so it was nice to to have that. Um, so, um, your game two then. Uh, so, we mentioned that uh, so game one was against the Tyranids where you were defending um, these, you know, predatory beasts and the Tyranids had to try and break through your entire line to get to the objective markers behind you. Um, your game two was the Break the Stalemate mission. Yeah, on Operation Bad Squig. Operation Bad Squig. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I must admit, I actually 
have played that mission before. So I actually knew what was going on, which was, that might have had enough, you know, somehow. <clears throat> but I would say the bigger effect on the game was the environmental um yeah, so this effect. was against uh, Jonathan Sharp's... Uh, yeah, with his awesome synthesised Necrons <laughs> yeah. from the 1980s that, like, I just want... It just felt like I'd just turned on Saturday morning t TV and, like, there was some sort of synthesis... I can't say the word synthesised... Synthesised music in the background with, like, cool neon strobing effects and I'm hoping at some point he puts them on... Um, the Facebook page for everyone to see because they're really cool um, and we ended up playing where there was a lava flow that was creeping slowly across the battlefield one of um, my favorites it is I've never played it and I've always wanted to and there's a reason why it's really good um, because it's just like run away run away quickly or in my case don't bother running away just just wait for the inevitable creeping lava to go over your toes mm, yeah so this was the mission where there were five objective markers all in a center line along no man's land and um, in addition to holding them and scoring victory points when you have control of them you have the ability to basically shunt them forwards like six inches towards your opponent's table edge yep. in order to then make them worth more victory points while you're holding them yeah so it's, it's quite hard to do though because it is you, the way you've, it's worded and it is done very well it's not like oh I'm gonna sh I'm gonna hold it shunt it forward and then get extra points for shunting it forward is you basically when you have that you have the choice of either staying on it which will get you five points or you can punt it forward but you can only punt it forward at the end of the command phase after you've already scored the points so you actually have to forgo mm. points to shunt it forward the aim really is to try and push with your units ahead of the objective marker and then like pass it forward. Yeah. So like it's, one unit it's uh, shunts Blood it to Bowl, one of the others. It's 40k style. That's what it is. It's, it's rugby. It's, it's yeah. 40k rugby. It's great. Um, but then obviously the wrinkle in this particular setup was the fact that yes, there's also an encroaching like flow of lava along um, one of the short table edges coming down the table. I'm going to be honest, Tony, it it's a little bit everything. more than a wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. more than a wrinkle. And yeah, it consumes everything in its path, including the objective markers, as yes. and when it eventually overlaps them. Um, and it, 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 was, it was quite an entertaining game of... Um, it was quite an entertaining game of me running my Death Strike. It started at one end of the table, and then it drove to the other end of the table because it was being followed by lava and I didn't want to. I, <laughs> I did have also the urge every so often to shout the floor is lava every so often just because it, it seemed to. Just because it's a must. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and how gorgeous did that table look for it? It looked really good. And what was really nice was there was loads of... For, for essentially a table that was quite flat and could have yep. been quite boring... Because it could have been, it's a lava table, what are you going to have? It lava. was really, re yeah, exactly, it's just like flat. Um, but because they designed it with these massive stone lava pillars, almost like stalactite, F stalagmite, stalactite base things, there was loads of line of sight bro blocking terrain, but it felt right. It didn't just yeah. feel like, here's a box that's blocking out the way. And it was really nicely done. Um 
and obviously shout out to the excellent painted lava markers that I know you are very <laughs> proud of. Um, they were very useful and very cool. Um, yeah, thanks. I I, I created those um, specifically to use as the markers for that environment effect, like just for my own use, you know, um, like a year or two ago or whatever. Um, and this is the first time I've been able to see other people enjoying them and uh yeah i was really glad that they, they fit the table so well uh, as well yeah oh and i'm also gonna say sorry i just keep thinking of things that i need to interject with so i do no apologize it was an eighth edition mission in fact uh um not mission but eighth edition environmental effect from vigilus if i'm not mistaken Ooh, yeah there were, were using eighth edition rules how could we how could we how hey. dare we I know, right? There were even yeah, no. some 8th edition missions in play. <gasps> Heresy! Because <laughs> you know what, guys? I don't know if you're aware. You don't have to play the current edition rules. Don't tell anyone. Shh. Keep it secret. Yeah. And uh, especially across certain editions, some stuff is that, you know, cross-compatible, it's still great. Yeah. So, like, obviously, you didn't play with 8th edition rules of the game. No. The gameplay mechanics are all 9th ed. It's just we were using... An eighth edition mission that sorry not mission um, environment um which um in this instance didn't require any changing to bring it up to date with nine fed it was just as it was um when it first came out and um yeah even some of the missions on the day were eight fed ones which had very minimal um updating to make them nine fed compatible and that was basically just in some of the terminology quite often to do with um like scoring Basically. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. what was really refreshing and sort of shows where I am with with the current edition is that I was genuinely relieved I didn't have to keep track of secondary objectives. Yeah, because I had no interest. <laughs> it was like it was quite a oh thank goodness I can actually just concentrate on what I'm doing now. Um, yes, the advantage, or perhaps maybe not so much advantage, but just the difference, like one of the dist uh, distinctions between um, the GT way of scoring and the way that I was doing things for the Crucible of War, was that actually scoring your victory points for your missions was a lot simpler because of the fact mm. that there's no secondaries. Quite often there wouldn't even be like multiple ways of scoring. It'd just be like there's the one main way of scoring in the mission, some of it might even just be end game stuff. There were a couple of missions that were completely binary. Either the objective is achieved or it isn't, and therefore the attacker or defender is the winner or the loser. Yep. But so while your scoring was dead simple, the extra layers of uh, rules in effect is where the uh, the complexity in these missions lives. You know, it's in either the way you score or the environment. And I I think I'm going to say something controversial here. I think if you want to play with environmental effects and well it's not controversial to me and you probably tony but it might be yeah. controversial to people who don't play narrative stuff regularly if you want to play environmental effects don't bother with secondaries because it's, it's too much it's too much to think about it's, it's just yeah. too much to think about and actually it's more fun to play with the, the environmental effects than it is to oh, i'm gonna sit this space marine unit in the middle of the table why because because they like it here they, they want a picnic they like the idea they've bought a blanket and some sandwiches and <laughs> some jam and and they're trying to fight away wasps that's 
So, speaking of 8-fed missions and fancy environment rules, how about we quickly move on now to then your third and final game of the day, which was Cleanse the Hull. And it was the weirdest game I've ever played. It's just odd. And I think I mean that in every edition I've played, and all the games I've played, it was just really odd. I think I out-gene-stealer culted the gene-stealer cult. <laughs> you were the true brood brothers that day yeah it was really odd because the attacker technically was the defender and the defender was technically the attacker yeah so um this is the game that um adam talked about on the last episode so um adam and dave um were two of the four people that played this mission considering that obviously there were two people per game um on the day and you were the third of the four um and you played against adam yeah uh, so this was on the weapons platform board as i've come to call it which was the big giant, giant plasma cannon of death yeah the big giant plasma cannon and represented the exterior hull of a spaceship um and the attackers which were the gse um were trying to drill their way into the ship uh, which meant that they had some drilling equipment on the table that they were trying to stop being destroyed could say defend them um and then you as the defender were trying to defend your ship from being infiltrated so you had emerged yeah so you had emerged <laughs> onto the hull to destroy or attack these uh, drills yeah it's it's an odd one um when you think about it it makes sense but in the yeah. long and short of it was the fact that yes you as the guard were trying to destroy these objective markers that were across the table of these and objective zones it's a mission that so i'm going to say this out for, and, and tony and i have discussed this already but it's a mission that kind of needs a lot of care yes. with it because if you you could abuse it to you could just abuse it there's so many ways where you could go well technically i could keep a unit off of the table until the last turn and then bring them on and then and then i win and or or the other thing is or i or as a defender you could you there's so many things that you could abuse with it but because both players both i and adam were going into this going we're not going to do that that would be daft and pointless and we're not here for that it was almost almost like I suppose more like a, a D and D or or a tabletop role play or mm. anything like that, where you're you're entering you a social contract. A story. Yeah, you're telling a story, and it was awesome. And it came down to a last shot from a basilisk trying to target a hidden aberrant behind behind the drilling machine to stop him from pushing the buttons to make the drill work. It's amazing. Um, um, yeah, so. Uh, didn't get a chance to mention it much um, with Adam last episode just because the way the conversation flowed. Mm. But so this one played using like a void battle environment, didn't it? Because obviously it represented the fact that you were fighting in the void of space and the hull of the ship. Yep. Yeah. And so everyone had void hardened armor on. So everyone had uh, an extra armor save. So it was really tough to kill stuff. Um, even my guardsmen, because we were a four plus armor save, which is not bad for 80 models. And then, you <laughs> yeah. Sort of, yeah, and and then, it, but likewise, his, his, um, I think it was his acolytes. They have a three plus save or something ridiculous like, that, and they go to a two plus save. It's like, 
why are there suddenly Terminators with Gene Steelers claws going? What's going on? This is this is mental. And that, but there's so many cool that that one. It was the first one where I actually used um, a mission. There were mission-specific stratagems, and yep. I used one, um, which was a sort of like a trapdoor one, which I trapdoored. The, the, basically, I like the idea that there was this platform where the Death Strike was maglocked to it underneath, and it just <laughs> and then just oh, oh look, there's a Death Strike, um, a deep striking Death, strike. a deep striking Death Strike. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Um, yeah, so it was it was very sort of oh that's cool. Um, what? Uh, but he used one where he could call in a dead, basically reinforcements, like a unit. That yeah, he could killed. recycle a unit. Yeah, he could recycle killed. a unit, but basically they came in via a sort of um, a landing craft, which was quite cool. Um, and yeah, it was just a really. I mean, he was. It was one of those games where weird stuff happened. Like, oh, I'll fire my death strike on the second turn. I'll never get this six. Oh, I rolled a six. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's a big crater where your army was, and it, and it and it was like, what's going on? <laughs> and then and then it was like there was um, I can't remember the name of the Jesus Dealer cult snipers, but there was one in the snipers? gantry. Uh, possibly, uh, yeah. The, I, I don't know. I'm not there. I've, I, well, actually, weirdly, Tony, it's the first time I've ever played Gene Silicolt. I've never yeah. played against them, so I, I've never actually fought against them. Um, so not only was it an awesome sort of experience for sort of like the mission, it's it's actually the first time I'd ever played against them. So I was I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I, it, it was interesting as well because I my army got to set up on both sides so it was yeah so funnily enough your mission um given that you're playing gsc was one of the funniest 40k deployments i've ever seen um, <laughs> yeah. and that, that included the fact that on the table next to you that round there were uh, the imperial knight player was using concealed deployment so he had, <laughs> so he had pieces of paper to represent his hidden knights <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. um yeah. But uh, for you guys, because the GSC were starting on the table, but obviously they're GSC, so they didn't, they had their blip markers. And given the mission, the guard null deployed and would walk on on turn one, which meant that at the end of the deployment step of this game of 40k, there were no 40k models on the table. Correct. <laughs> it, it looked it was... like a game of Space Hulk. Yeah, it was like, oh... Okay, so um, should we have second turn? Oh, yeah, it was quite funny, uh, and it, um, and it, it was quite interesting how the scenario interacted with the blip markers. It was it was a a very odd. It was the, as I said, it was the weirdest game of forty k I've ever played. Uh, and I've played some weird forty k <laughs> games. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that is kind of the praise I um yeah. that I was aiming for with this. <laughs> this is the weirdest game I've ever played. Um, and it was just fun. It was just down. It was just all, just all round, mm -hmm. odd fun. Excellent. And yeah, well, it it was brilliant. To sort of uh, round out this little conversation, then. So, how did you find sort of like the wrap up and the awards at the end of the day, and then just generally um, some sort of final thoughts on the event I, as a whole? I wasn't expecting and loved the fact that I won an award for losing the most amount of, of models to environmental effects 
and I'm quite proud of myself for that. That was not intentional. It was just a case of... I think 11 of them were in the first game. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, because I think I lost a squad and a bit to the Avalanche, um, which was quite entertaining. Um, and then more to Lava. Uh, and what was funny is I, I, I didn't actually lose any in the last game because there wasn't any way of losing them into environmental effects. So most of them got killed by Rubble, which was <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, I liked the awards. I liked the fact that you still kept Best Painting in. Um, yeah, of course. Because I like that as an award. And I like the fact you had the... So I, I know it, it, it's silly, but I like the fact that the the award, you had an award for the sort of Arena of Death mission. Yeah. That was my favourite award you had, because it was just like... Yeah, and, and it wasn't just one person that got it. It was that every time somebody played on it, whoever won the Arena of Death got an award, which was quite cool. Um, yep. We handed out yep. free Champion of the Duel awards for the day for the free champions that had won the, the duel. And it was just nice. And it was what was nice is, is like, again, because there was no sort of... Usually at these events, there's a, a big sort of, like, scramble to see, well, where did I come? Where did I come? And I'm like, no, I could just talk about the games on the way home. Me and Dave talked about the... On the way home, we were just talking about the games all the way back our sort of hour and a half two hour drive we were it was all we were like oh i played this and i did this and this was cool and this mission was weird and it i don't know if i i don't know if i'd play it. I, what i think i said today i'd like to i'd like to do it again because i know that i won't play the same missions again or play the same it will be so different the re it's almost like the replayability of this is is immense yeah and I, again, love that fact about this format because I said on the day, like, you know, during the wrap-up to everybody, it's like, the best thing about this, we could run this same event day tomorrow with the same people and the same tables and the same missions, and everybody here could have a completely different experience again. Yep. And the thing is, because you've you've got double the variables, because usually it's oh, what armies am I going to play? And they've played differently. But not only that, you've got the, the... You could play... You could even play the same mission, but against a different army, and it would still feel different. It still wouldn't be the same um, sort of experience, um, yeah. which is really cool. Excellent. Um, so, generally, the sort of last question of, uh, of this then is, uh, would you do it again? Yes. Darth question. <laughs> move on no, no I would. It, it, it was I've actually recommended it to people as well um, I actually said to my I, I think I keep going on about my, my neighbour Chris my neighbour Chris who I play games with um, I said to him he doesn't play ninth. He, he only plays 2nd and I said if he played ninth, it would be the only way I would see him playing ninth. Um, oh great that's lovely to you because he he likes that sort of thing. It's it's refreshing. It's different. It's the uh, can I can I offer a suggestion? Am I allowed to do Go that? On, yeah, no, to yeah, an improvement. Uh, and it's not a criticism. It's an actually. It's actually if you could, this would be amazing. Go but on. I would try, and this would take a lot of effort, Tony. So I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm not expecting it because I've seen it done, and it, I, I've been to one thing where it was kind of similar if you could make it a campaign so every time 
someone plays a game, it goes to an overall arcing sort of like you, you're not looking you at player a large, wins, but you're yeah, looking a at larger like, narrative. Yeah, yeah, a larger narrative. That would be very cool. It's certainly um, something that I would like to consider being able to incorporate in future events because the advantage we've got now is that the first one's done. The, yeah. the foundations are there. I don't have to do the same legwork involved with creating all the resources for it the next time. Yeah. So I can instead put some effort into creating either more resources, like more varied stuff, a wider range of things, or some new concepts. Um, yeah, it would be really cool because I've been to one other, the only other 40k event I can think of that's anywhere close to this um, was a, a campaign weekend. But what they did, which was re which would also free you up to do other things, was they basically said what the missions were and let the tables out and then the pl you had a general and then the general assigned armies to the particular tables to see what you like as a sort of i'm going to, i'm going to send the guardsmen over here and then tyranids uh, the the uh, space marines can go to this front here and this and it was very it was very thematic yeah. that would you see be that cool. would be that would be great to basically do a sort of like team format equivalent yeah. of the yeah, Crucible yeah, of War. Yeah, yeah. You know, that would be a really cool idea to explore. So, but, yeah. So, I'll, other I'll than that, I wouldn't for... change a thing. It was great. <laughs> um, well, Dan, um, at time of recording, I don't think you will have heard this previously, but we did um, mention it on the last recording, so it will have been out there now um, in the world for people listening to the last episode. But uh, we do already actually now have the confirmed date for <gasps> the Crucible of War 2. <laughs> the Tucible of War. <laughs> Crucible of War the second. Yeah, this time <laughs> it's back with the vengeance <laughs> and you can't hide all the other trailer things that you would say. Uh, Crucible of War 2 Electro Priest Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, book a space in your diary if possible for October fifteenth. October fifteenth. I will. I'm. I'm hoping. I, uh, the thing is, I've got to go and now beg that I can go. And if you, yeah, if you want to see us ugly mugs, come along because it's it's worth doing because we're all there. Yeah. And hopefully, some of the others will will turn up this time. I'm looking at you, Dan. Uh. <laughs> hey, Dan, Dan wanted to be there. He tried. I know he did. Uh, no, I know he totally did. understandable why he couldn't make it. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so the Crucible of War Two is going to be taking place on October fifteenth, um, later this year, at tabletop events again. Um, and yeah, hopefully this time, one we've got a bit more um, warning in terms of time. You know, for, I mean, because we had, I think we had three months from announcement to date um, for the first one. So we've got a little longer this time for people to um, sign up, you know, get armies ready, um, plan the dates, and you know, basically, you know, take time off work, all the rest of it, make themselves available, and yeah, hopefully it means we can get an even bigger turnout for the second event. And, yeah, uh, it would it would be awesome to see um, more people down there. Not that it there was it was there was a lot of people at the event. So. There was, but the the best thing was is that we could have filled capacity a little bit more if. Um, if we wanted to, if that makes sense. And if you didn't so... come, why not? You should have done. Yeah. Shame on you. You should come. <laughs> I'm talking um, to you at the back. 
so yes, yeah, so hopefully uh, we will see you there for the next Crucible of War, Dan. I hope so. So thank you very much for taking the time to uh, come and tell us about your own tale from the Crucible, and uh, we'll no doubt hear from more attendees in the next couple of episodes, and hopefully people will again be interested to hear the sort of things that people have been up to. So having faced down the Tyranids through... Uh, a rock sliding avalanche, the um, necrons across the scorching lava fields of Bad Squig, and finally purging the Gene Stealer cult from the hull of your void ship. Uh, hopefully, these are free stories and free experiences that you'll take away and uh, remember as the strangest games of 40k that you ever played. They were definitely that. I don't know. <laughs> I, should I rank them? I don't know if I rank And what would I rank them with? Ooh, there's a question. <laughs> but in either case, regardless of how they turned out, I'm sure you had an excellent time with them all and enjoyed them all. And definitely did. As I said, I'd definitely do it again. It was, it was just nice. It was just, it was so nice. It was so different and so refreshing. It was like a, it was, it, it was just an, it was, it was just so different and just so. Oh, I'm not doing this. I feel like sometimes with 40k, you do go through the motions, and it wasn't that, which is why I enjoyed it. There you go. Excellent. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles, and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on, and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram, at NarrativeWarGamer, and over on Twitter, at Narrative40k, for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And welcome back, listeners. Hopefully you all enjoyed our first ever Tales from the Crucible. And uh, I'm sure Daniel has just been uh, recounting his experiences against a certain Gene Stealer cult and a certain ship. <laughs> Getting absolutely so bombarded. <laughs> um so yes, Adam, you, you were there first hand for that one, so I'm sure we've heard your half of the story and now we've heard uh, Dan's. So yes, uh, I'm hoping that this is starting to create a, a wider picture for people listening and uh, been enjoying hearing about the escapades that took place at the Crucible of War and hopefully we'll be looking forward to taking part in more of them come October. So yes, a uh, big thank you for... Um, Big thank you to Daniel for coming on and doing that interview with me. And uh, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that and can look forward to more Tales from the Crucible in the near future. However, for tonight, we're now jumping back into our Rift War coverage. So this is the second part of Warzone um, Natchmund Rift War. And this is going to be all about the different kinds of army lists and crusade forces that we can now build with some of the brand new rules that are in here. Um, and the first part of that is going to be somewhat Zinchian themed, as the first thing we're going to talk about is the Army of Renown in here, uh, the Warp Meld Pact. 
which basically is Zinchi Beast Men doing Zinchi Beast Men things. If you like Zangors, then this is the Army of Renown for you. It's basically um, just all about manipulating that sort of like Brayherd, change, spawndom sort of stuff that that aspect of the Thousand Sons is all about and uh, really focusing in on it. So, as with any army of renown, it comes with a little slew of restrictions and benefits. So, first up, the restrictions. Um, the army cannot include any vehicle, demon, or cultist units. It's basically going to be all uh, rubric, marines, and zangors in some shape or form. There are no named characters, so no Araman, no Magnus, and so on. No units that know any psychic powers from the discipline of vengeance, which, fortunately, not having any particular resident Thousand Sons tonight, I'm not 100% sure which law that is, but I'm guessing it's one of the many ones the Thousand Sons have access to. Yeah, they're not limited in their, their access to war powers, are they? <laughs> <laughs> not generally. Um, and uh, detachments in your army do not gain the mere servants ability, which I think is actually a benefit because I think that's the um, sort of like drawback rule for being for Zangors. So I think that's removed in this instance, and therefore they gain access to whatever benefit was normally restricted from them, which I think is something possibly to do with the Thousand Sons, like chapter tactic. Um, but it's a minor point; it makes them a little bit better. Your army must include more Bray units in total than the total number of Rubric, Marines and Scarab Occult Terminators. So the sort of usual thing we're seeing in particular the Chaos Armies where um, you need to have X amount of a certain thing more so than other things. So you need to have more Beastmen than Marines. Basically. And that's number of units, not number of models. Yes, <laughs> otherwise you'd probably be able to do it with one unit. Yeah, it'd be fairly easy. <laughs> Interesting that it's that way around though, because like Death Guard, it's your own. You have to have amount of uh, Marines yeah. or Terminators for every Poxwalk unit. So it's interesting that they have like the, I guess the lesser, uh, <laughs> the lesser beans. Yeah, the lesser beans as as the the main force. Well, so I think that's basically the gimmick of this particular army of renown. So, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, listeners, but I believe the reverse of this is true otherwise in the Thousand Sons. Like you say, you would have to have at least one unit of um, rubrics or scarab occults per Zangor unit normally. Um, and this is just inverting it because this particular army is all about the Beastmen yep. and it's more about them than it is the, the rubric marines. That makes sense. Interesting. But if you abide by that various list of restrictions, then you gain some benefits for that. Which one gives you access to a new warlord trait, relic, a brand new cabalistic ritual, and some new stratagems. Certain units gain the Touched by Zinch ability, so this is basically Exalted Sorcerers, Infernal Masters, Sorcerers, Zangors, and Chaos Spawns. Um, gain a 5-up in button, and a 5-up ignore mortal wounds. And get a 6-inch pre-game move, which as many a Necron player can tell you, is quite good. Yeah, it's quite horrible, the uh, six-inch pre-move as well. Like I've played quite a, well, a couple of games against Necrons, and they usually take that. It's usually quite horrible. Yeah, and in particular, the sort of addition of the Firepin Vun and the Ignore Wounds 
uh, ignore mortal wounds protection for Zangors and Chaos Spawns in particular makes those units more durable. So again, being the sort of primary building blocks of this army of renown, it's going to give them more staying power. Yeah, especially like um, in psychic bottles as well, if there's like smites going off and stuff like that and you can ignore the mortal wounds. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in addition, in this army of renown, Zangor do gain the core keyword, as you would expect <laughs> uh, for this particular formation. Um, and additionally, Zangor Shamans generate some extra Cabal points when they're near Zangor units. So a bit like the old rules for Orc, Weird Boys, um, by being a psychic unit that's surrounded by these sort of lesser creatures of a similar kindred, it gives them some psychic boons. So extra Cabal points. Which you can then spend on your brand new Kabbalistic ritual <laughs> called the Bray Change. So I'm going to read this one out because it does some pretty fun stuff. So Kabbalistic rituals are basically the almost like extra stratagems that um, thousands of players could use in the psychic phase um, based on what state their army is in at the time. Their units will generate X amount of Cabal points which they can then expend on Kabbalistic rituals that phase in a not unlike command points fashion. So it basically, again, unlocks a unique way of interacting in the psychic phase because they are the Thousand Suns. And in this particular instance, the Warp Meld Pact gains you access to an additional one of these rituals. So, the Bray Change for six Cabal points. Use this Kabbalistic ritual before taking a psychic test for a blessing or a malediction psychic power. When taking that psychic test, roll one additional d6. If the result of that psychic test is 10 or more, and it is not denied, select one friendly Zangor unit within 9 inches of the Psyker manifesting the psychic power. If that unit has the Bray keyword, return up to 2d3 destroyed models to that unit with their full wounds remaining. Otherwise, return up to d3 destroyed models to that unit with their full wounds remaining. Which I believe, if it's not the actual infantry squads of Zangors, it would be the um, the guys on the discs, uh, the units of. So you'd be returning D3 models to those units. Say the Enlightened, I think? I think so, yeah. yeah. That's quite good. So your earlier comparison to Necrons is not, uh, not far off the mark. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Basically, sort of enhanced reanimation, as it were, is sort of a theme throughout this army of renown. Um, yeah. Bringing back um, dead Zangors and Bray units and basically healing through manipulating time and um, matter and everything else. Um, the actual description for this is that um, sorcerers of warp meld packs pride themselves in the use of spells that can fashion Zangor from raw warp energy. Or mutate living creatures into the avian base, uh, avian beastmen. So they're actually like mutating, like you know, other um, fighters or whatever. Like, imagine narratively they were fighting guardsmen or whatever, and by using this ritual, you're not just returning some dead Zangor. You're maybe transmuting and changing some of the injured guardsmen that are on the battlefield and turning them into these Indian beastmen who then join your, you know, your ranks. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, not for the card player, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, interestingly as well, the just rolling additional d6 on the psychic power. There's no sort of like roll an extra d6 and discard the lowest or pick two or whatever. It's just just get a free d6 cast. Yeah. However many, if you're doing other rituals, maybe as well on top of this. Um, and then you get a, a brand new relic, the Diamond of Distortion. Um, this precious gem is infused with a strange energy that distorts reality around the bearer, making them all but impossible to strike. Not unlike a glass ball of shadowy, mystical <laughs> hiding folk. But this is a diamond of distortion. Uh, Zangor Shaman model only in your command phase. Select one friendly warp meld pack Zangor or warp meld packed chaos spawn unit within nine inches of the bearer. Until the start of your next command phase, models in that unit gain a 4 plus invulnerable save. So again, the idea of making Chaos Spawns even tougher with 4 pin buns. Um, that's sort of like the second gimmick of this particular army of Renown is actually really powering up the Chaos Spawn. So, yeah, if you like if you like Zangors and Chaos Spawn, this is the army for you. I don't play them much. Because they've only got a five up save, but to buff them up like that, they're they're no joke. Like that's scary. <laughs> they're very, very powerful and scary when they actually get into combat. Yeah, and this is just going to help maintain that, uh, help ensure Keep that they get away. there. Yeah. That, yeah. Plus that six inch move as well pregame. They're really going to be yeah, closing the gap well. and being a bit more survivable. And then, finally, for this army of renown, you also get access to a slew of additional stratagems, uh, but particular ones of interest I wanted to just pick out is um, I'll, I'll let Dave read through a couple of these because I'm sure he'll enjoy them. First up we've got the Gift of Change. <clears throat> the Gift of Change. Sorry, I'm on the wrong page. <laughs> you to change page. <clears throat> got it. Change page, there we go. So, uh, one command point. Uh, so, Epic Deed Stratagem. And the flavor text is the energies of the warp can swiftly remake a being they have destroyed in their own image so exactly that kind of reanimation that we just talked about use this stratagem in your psychic phase when an enemy character's unit is destroyed uh, set up a new warp meld packed chaos spawn unit from your army on the battlefield within six inches of that unit and not within the engagement range of enemy units that chaos spawn unit contains one model and if you are playing a game that uses a points limit, does not cost any reinforcement points. If you're playing a crusade game, at the end of the battle, the chaos spawn is not added to your order of battle, and you can only use this stratagem once per battle. So narratively, it's very much uh, killing. Uh, when you kill the enemy character, you can uh, form him into a chaos spawn for use in this game, or, or use that to summon a chaos spawn from your army onto the board, effectively. It's really like a kick while they're down kind of moment as well, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? A transmutating kick while they're down. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, have any of you um, watched the recent Hammer and Bolter episode in the Plague Garden? Of all the, oh, uh, I love yeah, that one. Yeah, it's my yeah, favourite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's that sort of opening scene where the now ex-champion gets full spawned and it's yes. that. That's yeah. exactly what I imagined as well. It's, it's so brutal as well, that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, the idea that, you know, for one CP, killed your guy, oops, he's a kill spawn. 
and for free, even in match play, doesn't cost you those reinforcement points. It's just a fun little thing for one CP that's just really cool and tells a story. And uh, yeah, again, Chaos Spawns and Zangors, the whole theme of this army. Um, to which point, one of the other stratagems I have available is the Warp Meld Spawn stratagem, which is a make spawns better stratagem. <laughs> One CP, thanks to a mastery of mutagenic powers, the chaos spawn of warp milled packs are particularly powerful as the magics of change grant them even greater strength and resilience. Use a stratagem before the battle when you're mustering your army. Select one warp milled packed chaos spawn unit from your army. They get plus one strength and toughness uh, for models in the unit for the game. Which I think is, again, I don't know precisely, but I think that's probably going to be pushing them into the regions of like strength and toughness six or thereabouts. So pretty beefy, considering that they also have a five-up invun in this army. Yeah, yeah. Assuming you don't use um, the relic to give them a four-up invun. <laughs> and then finally, um, following on with that sort of theme of reanimation within this uh, army, we have the Blessed Transmutations for 2CP. With the energy of Zinchian magics flow so strongly, not only can Zangor once slain be restored to life, but more can be created from the pure warp power. Use this stratagem in your command phase to select one warp meld pack psych model from your army. For each friendly Zangor unit within six inches of that model, if that unit has the break keyword, return up to D3 plus one destroyed models to that unit to their four wounds remaining. Otherwise, return one destroyed model to that unit with their four wounds remaining. But for two CP, that's every Zangor unit within six inches of that Psyker character. That's really cool. I just kind of like imagine that like cells kind of like splitting off into two and just these just gaining loads more. Yeah, very sort of pink horror-esque, isn't it? That idea of maybe like splitting down into two things, but somehow there's actually even more than there was originally. They split into yeah. two equally large beastmen or something, you know? So yeah, that's uh, that essentially is some of the highlights of the Warp Meld Pact. If you like your Zangors and like your Gale Spawn, and you like reanimating, but you don't like Necrons, then maybe this is the army for you. Uh, just adding the narrative and a different kind of Zinchian Warband that may, may uh, if you got a little bit uh, burnt out uh, but you still like Zinch uh, on the, the existing way you construct your armies, it might be a, a nice thing, a nice change up for, to follow. It's very lost on the damn desk, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this sort of whole cultists and you know mutants sort of theme that seems to be apparent in more modern upcoming Chaos Rangers. It certainly seems to be a direction within the Chaos Pantheon that they're uh, exploring more recently. So it's interesting, like you say, to see this more non-Astartes side of Chaos Mortals getting some attention. Yeah, it, it, it is nice. Sorry, Dave, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say as well, we've seen some new uh, Chaos Cultist sort of models coming through. Uh, the Necker, the Necromund and Kill Team Rangers as well, which is is nice to see and allows to to pack out uh, homies like that with a, a little bit more variety in the models. Yeah, definitely. I've always liked the idea of like having like demonic powers and stuff like transforming the battlefield into different things. So to see all the 
the Zango's been zapped back, whether it's being brought back to life through time changing, sorry, time changing, or if it's the uh, actual guardsmen themselves or whoever being zapped and turned into Zango's, that's, that's a really cool idea. I think there could be some nice opportunities here for taking some of these rules and combining them with some of the war zones we've seen previously and reviewed previously, uh, such as the, uh, the the close to the war battlefield where um, everything was bendy and moving around from the last uh, from the last uh, war zone. Do you remember what was that one, Tony? That was the Mirror Plains of Duos. There you go. Thank you. I knew you'd remember. Encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> It's but almost that's, like that's it's like hours and hours pouring across all the ones that were currently <laughs> in all the publications of 9th edition for some reason. <laughs> but it's it's like uh, it's like a way to bring your battles very close to the immaterium where the reality and, uh, and the warp are, are melding so close together, which is clearly a battleground that Sneech would favour, right? Exactly. I mean, I think that the new possessed cultist models that are going to be coming out would look spectacular if kit bashed with the zangos so they are that they're beast men because they've got you know the bray horned heads and stuff um and even switching out like the, the chainsaws like the zinchi and chainsaws and stuff but having them physically be so mutated of form um would look very appropriately zinchian especially for this army of renown even if you just took some like, uh, like converted say two boxes of them and then scattered them throughout your units and your army as a whole so you, you're not playing them as the possessed cultists you're just playing them as zangors in this army but that would add to that sense of mutability yeah I wonder if there can be some way of like kind of like splitting them down you know because we were saying about like the way they split into two if you could even do that with a box and like cut them up and like use green stuff, something like that, so he looks so warped and split that you actually get like two models out of it or something like that, could be quite interesting. Well, the the old trick for doing Zinchi and stuff like that is um, just green stuff flames as if they're emerging yeah. from fire, so you can take your two halves. <laughs> yeah, two models for the price of one, so long as half of it is you know popping out of a, a bonfire. <laughs> um. But that's actually not all for Zinch in this book because he has clearly been manipulating the Rift War in his favour as he gets a whole second slew of Crusade rules in here, specifically for the Palace and Sons. And this is the Arcane Rituals. So, in a similar vein to some of the stuff we've seen in previous books, this is kind of like Crusade Rules Plus for any given, for a particular given faction. So in the case of the Death Guard, we saw the um, Virulent Gifts in the Warzone Charidon um, series. Uh, in the case of Orcs, we saw the Looted Vehicles expanding on the Scrap System in the Octarius books. And now Arcane Rituals expands upon the Arcane Points, which the Thousand Sun players are acquiring throughout their Crusades. Uh, basically, it's, um, it's sort of like a secondary resource gathering um, and then expending system to receive a new slew of benefits and relics and bonuses um, that is tied to the arcane point system. So, uh, all you need to have in your order of battle in order to be eligible to start pursuing arcane rituals is um, you just need to have a Thousand Suns Sorcerer or Thousand Suns Infernal Master um, in your order of battle, which probably going to be quite likely. <laughs> uh, 
which does mean you could do this with a warp, um, a warp meld pact because you could have those characters leading that particular army of renown. Or it could just be for a general purpose Vazel Sun's army. Uh, basically, the goal here is to try and achieve, uh, try and not recover. What's the word? Uh, try and acquire uh, different kinds of arcane materials. There are three kinds of materials: inscriptions, souls, and offerings. Uh, and you gain each of these materials by either completing uh, one of the three new agendas. There's one agenda for each of these different material types. Um, or whenever you would gain an arcane point using your standard Thousand Suns Crusade rules, uh, you can choose to roll a d6, and on a 4+, plus, instead of gaining the arcane point, you will gain a random arcane material. And then you have to acquire X many amounts of these particular materials, and you expend them in performing ritual incantations, which we'll get to in a minute. So first of all, in order to acquire these via agendas, uh, we have, first up, bind their souls. So um, this is a... Uh, so let me just check this. Uh, if you're fans, I want agenda from... Yeah. Okay. So to earn these materials through agendas, you've got access to a new agenda subtype. So this is the uh, arcane hunt agendas. So in theory, when you're playing your crusade games, you could have one of your Thousand Suns agendas from your Crusade rules and an Arcane Hunt agenda as two of your agendas for that game. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, so you, instead of picking one from the core book, you'd just take like one of these as well as one of your from your codex. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing like a Strike Force game where you typically access to three agendas, you could have a Thousand Suns one, an Arcane Hunt one, and then one of any other category choice that you fancied. Cool. or you know any other sort of combination thereof but particularly uh, specifically within the arcane hunt agendas we've got three to pick from uh, which does mean obviously because you can only have one of these per game you're only going to be hunting one material type per game you can't pick all three of these as your three agendas if that makes sense yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so first up we have bind their souls uh, keep a soul tally for each unit from your army, and each time a Thousand Suns unit from your army destroys an enemy character unit, add one to its soul binding tally. At the end of the battle, the unit from your army with the highest soul binding tally gains four experience points, and your Crusade force gains one soul for each of the following. The enemy warlord is destroyed, and or all the enemy character units are destroyed. So you can get between one and two souls one of which has to be the Warlord, and one of which is for all the enemy characters. So not only are you uh, taking their soul, but you could also bring it back into a, a spawn as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you are defeating them both in spirit and body. <laughs> then next we've got the Uncover Lost Tomes. So this is for an uh, inscription material. So if you select this agenda and at the start of the battle, your opponent secretly selects two objective markers, at least one of which cannot be within their deployment zone, uh, to be locations of hidden tomes. Keep an uncovered tomes tally for each unit from your army. A Thousand Suns infantry units in your army can attempt the following action. Search for tome. One Thousand Suns infantry unit from your army can start to perform this action at the start of your command phase if it is in range of an objective marker. This action is completed at the end of your turn. 
Once completed, your opponent reveals if that objective marker was the location of a tome. If it was, add one to the uncovered tomes tally for the unit performing this action. At the end of the battle, each unit gains a number of experience points equal to four times their uncovered tomes tally, and your crusade force gains a number of inscriptions equal to the combined total of all your units' uncovered tomes tallies. So, in short, that means that out of X many objective markers you're playing with for that game, two of them will have inscriptions under them, and units can search all the objective markers, gaining XP for everyone they do search, and you gaining inscriptions for each one of the correct ones that you search, but you don't know which is which. That's pretty cool. You're likely to be able to get to most objectives every game. So. Yeah. Um, so, go hunting to find these inscriptions that are hidden on the objective markers. Now you've got your six-inch pre-game move as well, so... <laughs> and your epic spawns, which won't die. <laughs> and then finally, in order to acquire offerings, you have the Ransack Shrines agenda. If you select this agenda, then at the start of the deployment, before any units are set up on the battlefield, your opponent sets up two shrine objective markers anywhere on the battlefield, not within nine inches of any battlefield edges. These markers do not count as objective markers for any rules purposes other than for this agenda. Keep a ransacked shrines tally for each unit from your army. Add one to a unit's tally each time it successfully completes the ransacked shrine action. Blah, 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 blah. At the end of the battle, each unit gains a number of experience points equal to double their ransacked shrines tally, and your crusade force gains a number of offerings equal to the combined total of all your ransacked shrines tallies. So this is go and wreck these extra objective markers, and it's worth XP to the units that do it, and you gain um, offerings for each one that you wreck. These different types of things that the <clears throat> Thousand Suns can, can get in Crusade here, I don't know if it's just me or misremembering, but it feels a little bit like the ADMAC rules, where they they get different kinds of things to build different kinds of uh, archaeotech. Um, and it, it, it feels a little bit similar. Is that fair? Or am I making a false comparison? No, it, it is very similar. Um, the... The outcome with the ritual incantations is a little more straightforward, but the concept of acquiring components in order to access them is very similar to the way that the Admech are acquiring Archaeotech parts, yes. Right, right. It is a very good comparison to make. Okay, that's unusual for me. I usually just play Space Marines. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with the shrines and stuff as well, it would give you, like, if you were taking that agenda quite a lot, it gives you something to kind of you could kit bash a couple of shrines because if you're going to be taking it yeah. often you, you can make some really nice kind of like uh, markers for that I think it's almost like you could use them as idols if you were playing Wars of Faith missions <laughs> <laughs> but yes no, they would they would make some excellent modelling opportunities um, especially with Vizinchi and stuff you can just imagine things hovering on discs or flames or mutated um, beasties yeah, I feel um, like you could do like quite cool as well. Say for it was like a, an imperial shrine, but like they're warping it, so it's like rocks all coming apart and swirling things like that. Yeah, that'd be cool to see, actually. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe like a Sisters of Battle kind of broken statue, <laughs> like the new one, Happy Building Tonight. <laughs> that just came from Warhammer Plus. <laughs> <laughs> 
that would work perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. So, now that you've acquired your various inscriptions, souls, and offerings, how would you like to spend them? Well, you have some choices. Uh, basically, after a crusade game, you can perform one ritual incantation, which costs a number of arcane materials, depending on which type of incantation you would like to perform. So, there are three different incantations, and each of them requires one of the components you need to have three of them, two of the other, and one of the third one. And they vary depending on the ritual, which one you want to perform. So, for example, the first option is the ritual incantation to summon demon. This requires one inscription, three souls, and two offerings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. There's an each one I won that one, right? Yeah. Now, all the incantations have that base cost, but they also have an elevated cost, um, which if you expend some extra materials, you get an enhanced version of the benefit. In the case of Summon Demon, if you were to expend five souls instead of three, you would get the elevated effect. So, the base benefit for summoning a demon is you can add one Zinchian demon unit with a power rating of eight or less to your order of battle and increase your Crusade Force's supply limit by that power rating. So you don't have to expend the requisition to increase your supply limit in order to include the demon unit. That's really cool, isn't it? So it's like you're expending the resources to summon them and bypassing the need to expend your army building resources to include them. And uh, it's worth noting that I feel this would make a sensible um, crusade reason to include demon units in your warp meld pact because the army building restrictions for that prevent you from taking demons in the army build but I think that if you had conducted an arcane ritual to summon them I think they would then suitably be added to your army of renown without breaking it yeah, yeah that makes sense. sense even if you house rule it I'd be happy with anyone doing that it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, which I think makes it almost an incentive in particular for the Warp Meld Pact because you're actually trying to that's how you're going to get demons into your army. Yeah. I don't think it would break to... anything, like No, it wouldn't. I don't think it would break anything. I just think it's a nice way of actually having a set goal for the army of renown, yeah, being definitely. able to add demons to it. Um and if you had the elevated effect by expending the two additional souls, you could ignore the power rating limit. So basically, that's how you get to add things like a Lord of Change to your order of battle, because it's got more than the power level of 8. And then, we have our other two kinds of arcane rituals, which are Blessings of Zinch and Ethereal Learnings, which basically revolve around um, battle traits. So, a Blessing of Zinch requires one soul, two inscriptions, and three offerings. And you can, when you perform that incantation, you can select a thousand sons infantry unit from your order of battle, and it gains one battle trait. So this would be selected from wherever you could normally pick a battle trait for them. Or, if you expend two additional offerings and get the elevated effect, you can pick a battle trait from this particular D3 table for the Blessings of Zinch. And I'll just read them off to you now, because they're pretty good. You've got Zinch's Ward, once per battle, when this unit is selected as the target of an attack, it can use this blessing. If it does so until the end of the turn, while those in that unit can afford Bimbun. 
2, doing Foresight, each time I model in this unit makes a ranged attack that targets a unit within 12 inches, reroll a wound roll of 1, and Warping Form. Each time I model in this unit would lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound, on a d6 roll of 4+, plus, that wound is not lost. So, some unique battle traits available there. And then Ethereal Learnings is the same thing, it costs inscriptions for the enhanced version, and you get access to either a Psychic Fortitude upgrade for a Thousand Sun Sorcerer or Exalted Sorcerer, or you get to roll on this unique D3 table of Psychic Fortitudes for Zinji and Sorcerers. And the bonuses you would get for that one are 1, Power and Bound, each time this unit attempts to manifest a psychic power, if the test includes a double and is successful, it cannot be denied. Two, Witchfire Shards. Each time this unit successfully manifests a psychic power, select one enemy unit within 18 inches of this unit and roll 1d6. On a 3+, plus, that enemy unit suffers one muscle wound. And on a 3, Multiplane Form. The first time this unit successfully manifests a psychic power in each of your psychic phases until the start of your next psychic phase, each time a model in this unit would lose a wound on a d6 roll of 5+, plus, that wound is not lost. Oh, helpful. Oh, good. It's quite cool. Yeah. It would be interesting, you know, the one where you said you get doubles. Um, so in the Armies of Renowned, where it said you could roll another dice for your psychic power, so you could probably get more chance of getting a... A double, a double make it yes. real, yeah, and it really make it hard to kind of deny them. It's already going to be quite hard with a D or three dice. So. <laughs> I, I I got a double six under five. It's undeniable. <laughs> uh, you don't say. I mean, the key thing is it prevents people using those like uh, stratagems that just auto deny like a, a four plus roll and so on. Yeah. But yeah, the fact that there's additional psychic fortitudes as a table upgrade is a big selling point because it's very rare that you get the chance to have other psychic fortitudes other than those in the core book for Crusade. Yeah, I think if you're a Thousand Suns player looking to expand uh, and do more Crusade stuff, especially if you want to, uh, if you've got a thing for Zangos, I definitely, it's a lot in here, they, uh, really, they really is abuse to you. Yeah, and then there is actually one final sort of little crossover component of all this is that if you are running with arcane rituals and you are conducting your arcane hunt and acquiring all your arcane components then in addition to the arcane points that you earn in the standard thousand Suns crusade rules you've actually also got the option of combining them to pick arcane rewards which are unique crusade relics which require the expenditure of both arcane points and some components when you when you equip them to your characters as they upgrade. So, if you have gone and got your parts and your arcane points and your characters have leveled up, then you can have access to some fancy crusade relics. And first with these, we have the Inscrolled Magazines. Ensorcelled. Sorry, not Inscrolled. Ensorcelled. <laughs> magazines. <laughs> this costs 5 arcane points and 1 soul. Uh, each time the bearer makes an attack with a bolt weapon, excluding relic bolt weapons, improve the armor penetration characteristic of that attack by 2, which I'm pretty sure being a Thousand Suns bolt weapon, it will already be a base minus 2. 
So that's going to be putting it to like minus four. Um, and add one to the damage characteristic of, ta of that attack. And invulnerable saving throws cannot be made against that attack. That's pretty, uh, pretty strong bolt weapon. Still yeah. strength four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's mostly. Yeah, I think it's mostly going to be bolt pistols of various shapes and forms because it's obviously a thousand sons character. But that is a pretty damn harsh one. It's like having yep. demonic armor piercing bullets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then there is also the Etheric Siphon, which is 10 arcane points and 2 inscriptions. Each time the bearer successfully manifests a psychic power or denies a psychic power, it regains one lost wound. So again, with that sort of theme of healing and regeneration. And then finally, for a whopping 15 arcane points and 2 offerings, we have the Warp Blade. The energies displayed is imbued with enable it to bypass some of the most potent warts. Model equipped with four sword or Prosperian Kopesh only. Plus two strength, AP minus three, flat three damage. Each time an attack is made with this weapon, the damage characteristic of that attack cannot be reduced and the target cannot make use of any abilities that allow them to ignore wounds. So it's going to be flat free damage and you're not going to be ignoring it. No feel, no pain, no wounds cap per phase, none of that. No ignore, one wound from multi-wound attacks on dreadnoughts, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Death gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zinch does not like the death guard. He will be doing his free damage to them <laughs> and they will not like it. That's very cool. And it sounds very cool. He doesn't want to walk yeah. the blade. And that is everything for Zinch. For now. And we'll get back to that shortly. Because before we move on to the last component of the uh, Crusades of Renown, we do also have the Warden Raiders. So... If your preferred space marines are of the slightly less spiky and mutated variety, then this is the Crusade of Renown for you, because as we've mentioned recently in a couple of sort of past episodes, um, the 9th edition Space Marine Codex is, when it comes to Crusade rules, certainly suffering from the you know early Codex syndrome, and actually it's got pretty basic crusade rules in it there's nothing really that engaging or expansive in it compared to some of the stuff these more recent codexes have um which is why if you find places such as the army of faith or the um banners of renown that have been some sort of expanded rules or crusade rules for space marines in recent publications and the warden raiders is no different so this is essentially a Army of Renown style formation for playing with your Space Marines, which unlocks access to a sort of secondary XP system, which can then be earning, which then is earned towards unique battle traits. So, if you're going to use a Warden Raiders force, it's basically a sort of fast moving mechanized Space Marine force, and as such, comes with a few restrictions. 
Your army can include Adaptus Astartes units only. It cannot take any Lords of War units. No spearhead detachments and no vehicle models with a move stat of less than 10 inches. So everything has to be at least 10 inches plus if it's a vehicle in terms of movement. And every infantry unit in your army must start the battle either embarked with a transport or be set up using either death from above, concealed positions, or teleport strike. So basically your army has to be deployed fully mechanized. You know, either forward deployed or deployed in its transports. And the benefit you get for sticking to this, which by the way, it's actually interesting that um, whilst this isn't a army of renown, it's sort of more like a crusade of renown because it's a particular way of building out a crusade force. This is actually determined when mustering your army from your order of battle for a game, not when creating your order of battle itself. So it's not like when you create your crusade army, you're declaring it to be a warden raider's force. It's just when you're picking the units from your order of battle for a single game, if you configure them with these restrictions, you can play it as a warden raider's army for that game. That's cool that you're not locked into it for the whole crusade. Yeah, exactly. It's actually a nice little send in the armored assault force, even if it's just for a combat patrol game. Yeah, so it could be like a certain mission or something where it's very fitting to send in vehicles and embarked troops and stuff like that. It feels quite like a, an application of Codex Astartes at the strategic level rather than the individual battle level. Yeah, and it's um, I think it's the first time I've seen something like this implemented where it's a when mustering your force level decision as opposed to when selecting your order of battle. While it behaves a little bit like an army of renown in the way that you're sticking to these restrictions um, for your army build for that game, uh, you don't gain any benefits to the army itself for doing so. It's not like you get you know, like special rules or stratagems or traits like you do with an army of renown. Instead, the benefit that you get is all about the sort of experience and agendas that you've access to because um, when you're playing your game with your Warden Raiders force, rather than gaining 1xp for every unit at the end of the game for playing a game, you gain one raid point for every unit in that force at the end of the game. And you gain access to four new agendas, um, which are, you know, do various things, be kill some stuff, go to some objectives, do some actions, the usual sort of range of um, agendas. Um, particularly ones like mechanized assault is actually tied to this sort of vehicle concept of the army. So this is where you would keep a mechanized assault tally for each strategic reserve vehicle from your army and you add one to its assault tally each time a model in that unit destroys an enemy unit and um, a model that started the battle embarked within that unit destroys an enemy unit. And at the end of the game you gain some raid points based on how many things you destroyed. It's all about gaining raid points and what those equate to is basically a secondary experience tally for those units so once a unit has over its career gained six to ten raid points it gains a raid force battle trait because it's increased its raider rank and then there is a second rank once they've earned 11 points of uh, raid points and then there are three d3 tables of battle traits specifically for 
biker units, infantry units, and vehicle units. Yeah, I appreciate this is a warden's list, but this feels quite nice for um, as a Death Watch player. A raid is the kind of thing that Death Watch do. Um, certainly, certainly on the battlefield that I tend to play, and it, and it feels like it's something that I might want to look into to using with my Death Watch. Yeah, and funnily enough, it's one of the things the Death Watch are actually allowed to play with, because quite often a lot of these things say Adaptis Astartes units, excluding Death Watch, yeah. <laughs> because they're kind of their own thing a lot of the time, but you can be a Warden Raider Death Watch force. That was the first thing I looked for in the book before I actually opened my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen like um, some of Winter's battles, but sometimes he has his, his uh, 13th and he has his Natharim force, and it's all his bikes and his speeders and stuff, and it just reminds me of that. It's really cool. Yeah, I've not known, but... no, it's it, yeah, it's it's basically it's all his firstborn marines, and he just yeah, it's like squads and squads of bikes, and then like three land speeders, and then a few units in rhinos. He said it's like his fast outflanking force, and it just reminds me exactly of this. Yeah, what's quite cool about it, I've just been working on some uh, some like space marines. It's something I'm just playing around with a little bit, but I kind of wanted them to be like desert raiders, so they've like, I wanted them all on tanks and bikes, and so they're basically like nomads wandering through the desert, and this is quite fitting actually, I was just reading it before and it's... Uh, Perfect, yeah. Yeah, it sounds quite good for that sort of thing. I mean, but Adam though, would field squads and squads of firstborn. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's nice to see how it's a... A system you can sort of drop in and out of as much as you want throughout the crusade career of your army because it's on that game by game basis and you're tracking raid points in parallel with experience so obviously your units gain their experience normally and if you're playing them as the warden raiders for a game i suppose they do still earn their regular xp for say you know killing enemy units um completing other agendas because Again, you've got four new agendas that specifically earn you raid points, but that is one category of agenda. So your other agendas that you would be selecting for that game would still reward XP to the units that complete them. So it basically it's it's sort of like a secondary parallel XP track, which means that you can gain up to two additional battle traits, sort of like in tandem with your actual list of battle traits. And you can drop in and out of it as much as you want over time. And um, they've got some interesting um, options in here, so I'll just quickly do one of each of the traits. So, for example, with the biker units, um, you've got vicious fighters. Um, each time this unit fights, if it made the charge move, was charged or performed a wrecking intervention this turn, you can reroll one hit roll and you can reroll one wound roll when resolving that unit's attacks. Uh, infantry units. Um, rapid disembarkation. The first time this unit disembarks from a transport model during a battle until the end of the turn, you can reroll charge rolls made for that unit. I can imagine yes. that being a popular choice. Um, and then vehicle units. Uh, one example is flank roller. Each time you set this unit, up, each time you set up this unit from strategic reserves, you count the battle round number as one higher than the current battle round. For the purposes of determining where this unit can be set up, regardless of any mission rules. That's so again, get into position even quicker. Well, you can come in on turn one as well. Yeah. Cool. Kind of come in on turn one anyway, right? Uh, I don't think so. 
I think it's the match player rules that, uh, that say you can't come in on turn Match player and crusade both say it's the only open player that don't, doesn't have the restriction, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think as standard, if you're in strategic reserve, there's still no option for turn one, not even your own table edge. I do think it has to be turns two and three before you can actually arrive. Whereas this one obviously would let you arrive in turn one. Yeah, that's cool. Always learning rules. That's good. <laughs> I actually, um, I, I was not, I'd... I was um, helping someone with this rule earlier on the, the Gene Stealer Cult page, so it's fresh in my mind. Yeah, no, that's okay. And I, you wouldn't, I, I would like to encourage any of our listeners, if you're not sure about the rules, ask about it and talk about it, because we all get the rules wrong all the time. Like we, there's very few of us that are like top level players that understand the rules so well and in so much depth that we always get them right. So. Um, it's better to be asked and not to be embarrassed about asking and just uh, uh, figure out together what the best way to play is, I think. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you are playing with the added layers of Crusade and Armies of Renown and this, that, and the other and everything else because it's fair enough to understand how complicated the interactions might be between your Black Templar vows and your Warren Raiders deployments and strategic reserves and how they're affected by the heroic banner bearers upgraded banner abilities in conjunction with the agendas <laughs> and yeah. so on it's entirely understandable for it to become and, somewhat a little confusing at times and, and equally adam and i had this experience and we talked about it in the last last episode um you know how your own army works you, you're not entirely sure how your opponent's army works so you yeah. talk about it and then when you're trying to add in battlefield rules as well right adam sometimes we went yeah, that feels right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think on Crusade as well, it's just like you've got you've so many extra elements to remember as well. Yeah. And it's not only your own army, but your opponent's army may have like the extra battle traits and things yeah. to remember too. You know, you're, you're sat there as a your Dark Angel player trying to be working out what you're going to be doing for your hidden agendas and being like, oh, excuse me, do you mind taking this Fallen model? Because this is my 10th game now and I need you to use this Fallen model um, to fight alongside your Thousand Sons. But, um, oh, what's this now? You, you need me to secretly note two of the objective markers, but don't tell you which are going to have hidden inscriptions under them that you're searching for. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was and... thinking about that as well. I mean, like your opponent could just kind of like... Obviously, you use it, Crusade, you're usually going to be playing with friends and stuff, but you could be like, no, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. Yeah, and I think yeah. the important thing to remember is, unless it is uh, something both you and your opponent enjoy, don't don't break for three hours to look up you know, every book to determine the exact rule. Take that away later. Move on with the game. Uh, figure out later if you want to. But uh, move on with the game and have fun and tell a story that's fun with, with your figures on the tabletop. That's uh, We say this every time, though, don't we? If you can't decide, probably just people are not listening. <laughs> probably people are not listening this deep into this series of podcasts if they, they've not got that <laughs> message from us already. <laughs> True. I mean, like the, the whole sort of like payoff, as it were, for all this um, complicated depth of Crusade you know, mechanics is the fact that it does tell a story in itself, yeah. you know, and um, it really becomes compelling for you as an individual to sort of develop that story arc of your army across your multiple crusade games. So I think it's ultimately worth it in the long run. And like yeah. you say, if there's anything 
sort of weirdly edge case or overcomplicated in the moment, then that's fine. Just, you know, brush over it, move past and uh, get onto the fun stuff or just let it play out in the way that feels most appropriate, even if it's not to the letter of the rule. Yeah. Because it's all there for just creating that immersive experience in the, in the long run. It's supposed to be a I fun I think the best game. thing with, like, narrative and stuff as well, and it? Like, narrative kind of lets you kind of decide... We're not going to play it strictly by the rules because if 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 it, if it helps to kind of benefit the narrative, you can kind of agree with your opponent to do that a little bit. I've done that in the past with like Crusade games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then finally, we will continue to dive through yet more Crusade rules in this book because this genuinely is sort of like the deepest Crusade offering so far in any given. Um, Warzone supplement, I would say, especially if you're a Chaos player, and double or even triply so if you're a Thousand Suns player. <laughs> um, because the last sort of crusade of renown that we have access to um, in these new rules is the Army of Chaos Undivided, which is funny that this is something I was discussing with Daniel Foley only a couple of weeks ago before we recorded the casual conversations about a concept almost exactly like this and i'm really glad to see it manifested already because this is something i was perhaps expecting to see in the chaos space marines or the chaos demons crusade rules so it's interesting that this exists here before we've seen those two codexes so so sort of break it down it comes with a couple of restrictions first of all you can only take chaos units funny that <laughs> there's no uh xenos no eldar or orcs in your army of chaos undivided but sure your army must contain at least one priest unit so um in theory this stops it right now from being able to be a pure demons army because I don't think any demons units have the priest keyword but take a dark apostle and you're golden um, and uh, you get to use detachment benefits for all your relevant keywords basically if you've got some chaos demons in your detachment then your detachment counts as a chaos demons detachment the same is true for heretics astartes thousand sons and death guard which basically means that you get your um, sort of like chapter tactic equivalent abilities and access to the stratagems for those even though you're going to be mixing them in an attachment so I know the good example here is like with the death guard um, in this mixed chaos force your death guard units would still get their inoxable advance so they'd still get that ability to not be slowed by terrain and always count as being able to rapid fire their weapons but they wouldn't get their contagions because the contagions is like the mono faction bonus. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't be reducing the enemy's toughness, but you're still getting that chapter tactic benefit for them, even though they might be in a single detachment that also contains corn demons and thousand suns and word bearers. For and cipher, I think, as well. And possibly <laughs> cipher. Um so it basically means that you can literally mix up, you know, all these Heretic Astartes, Chaos Demons, Thousand Sons, Death Guard, and soon-to-be World Eaters units in a single detachment, and the only thing that you'd lose is whatever those associated mono-faction bonuses are, but you do get everything else for them. So it's actually quite generous in that way. 
then the sort of core mechanic that you'll be tracking for this is dark patronage points and this is where you will keep four tallies one per each of the major chaos gods and you gain access to a new set of agendas uh, which includes one per god which will reward you with patronage points for that particular god um, depending on achieving their agenda so Nurgle's one involves going around and infecting objective markers Horns involves killing enemy characters Sanesh involves performing actions near enemy characters because you're like influencing their minds and the Zinchian one involves you know manifesting psychic powers Now, each of those agendas rewards you with you know, X amount of dark patronage points for that particular patron. Uh, and in addition, you gain D3 plus one patronage points for your warlord's patron tally um, if you win a battle or you lose one of his patronage points if you lose a battle. So if you've got your, your warlord has the mark of corn then winning or losing will add or reduce from your patronage to corn. And in addition, finally, you gain D3 patronage points for slaying the enemy warlord, and you gain those points to the corresponding god of the unit which destroyed the enemy warlord. So if you've got your corn warlord leading your army, but it was actually a unit of noise marines who killed the enemy warlord, then the Sunesh patronage points would be added. That's quite cool. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of like all the, the different Chaos factions, as much as they're all working together, it's kind of like trying to show off to their own god. Yeah, it's interesting how it's almost like there's four mini faction crusades that you're tracking here because they don't really cross paths at all. Um, it's just about adding and reducing from the run. For example, with the agendas being a category of agenda, you can only pick one of these per battle, which means you're committing to trying to complete that single god's agenda for the game. But then again, that could be a different one to your warlord for the game, and like a different god alignment, and that could be a different god alignment to the unit that you send off to assassinate the enemy warlord. Mm -hmm. And it is also one of the instances where it actually incentivizes you having multiple characters in your order of battle to be suitable warlords to lead your armies from game to game because your warlord is picked on a game by game basis it's not like you have to have a dedicated warlord for your order of battle that's right you could skip your high level each priests and just take your your corn uh, minor character in order to gain corn points in one battle right exactly so you would actually be sort of spreading the uh, um, attention, as it were, you know, across the gods in order to try and gain the various uh, dark patronage points. Then, what you actually use these patronage points is for two things um, tied to some new requisitions. Now, first of all, I did just mention a second ago that obviously you're committing to one god in terms of agendas. There is a slight way of circumventing this with the Dark Path requisition, where for one requisition point, you can pick an additional agenda for the next battle, of which up to two of your agendas could be from these new Army of Chaos Undivided agendas. So you could try and pursue two gods' agendas in one game. 
Okay, that's just blow my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Uh, but I guess it's Chaos Undivided, right? So, yeah, why not? And then the other two requisitions are like the payoffs for this. Um, so this is where you then expend these Dark Patronage points. So one of them is the um, True Knowledge requisition. So for one requisition point and eight Dark Patronage points from whichever specific god tally, um, you can basically give a new prayer to a priest of that god. So um, they learn one of these unique prayers associated with their patron. So in the case of, you know, if you've got a, four dark apostles, one that, you know, patrons to each of the gods, whenever they gain the true knowledge requisition, they would gain their god-associated prayer in addition to the ones that they know. And I'll just run through them all because they're all pretty cool. So uh, for corn priests, we have the imbunement of strength. Uh, if this prayer is heard, select one friendly corn Heretic Astartes unit within six inches of this priest. Each time a model in that unit makes a melee attack, you can re-roll the wound roll. And that's not just like ones, that's just re-roll all wound rolls, which is pretty great. Um, for Nurgle Priests, we've got the Sickening Blessing. The Sickening Blessing. If this prayer is heard, select one friendly Nurgle Heretic Astartes infantry unit within six inch. Add one to the toughness characteristic models in that unit. They're usually boosted in toughness anyway. You play uh, Death Guard, right? Adam? They are. Um, yeah, they're, t they're toughness five for the most part of the Pagan Marines. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So pushing to toughness six on those Black Lord Terminators. Oh, yeah, that's scary. <laughs> Especially the They're hard enough to get rid of as it is. <laughs> so then, uh, for Sinesh Priests, we have Preternatural Reflexes. If this prayer is heard, select one friendly Sinesh Heretic Astartes unit within 6 inch. Each time a melee attack is made against that unit, subtract one from that attack's hit rolls. So, minus one to be hit in combat. Again, pretty good boom. And then this last one, the prayer for the Zinchian priest, I'm going to let Dave pronounce because I will no doubt get it wrong. The Aeneanid. <laughs> the Aeneanid. If this prayer is heard and is pronounced correctly, so very unlikely, <laughs> then while a friendly Zinch Heretic Astarte Psyker unit is within six inches of this priest, add one to psychic tests taken for that unit. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that helps uh, sneak you across the board, doesn't it? Uh, particularly, obviously, the Astartes in this case. Yeah. So, I think what we can conclude from that, though, Tony, is that's why you play Orcs and you're not a Chaos follower, because you'd never pronounce the spells correctly, right? Nah, I'd get there eventually. <laughs> so it's really Game easy time. with Orcs, isn't it? You just made grunting noises mostly. Dark Horse Marsh. So that is one of the uses of these Dark Patronage points, unlocking new prayers for your God-associated priests. However, the really sort of fancy um, option is instead the Ceremony of Devotion. Now, this sounds very similar to the Virulent Gifts, um, where basically for one requisition, 
and five dark patronage points from your appropriate god. Um, you get to pick one of your army of chaos undivided character models, and they're going to gain a temporary one game use um, bonus ability. So similar to the virulent gifts where you get them, but they're just going to be for one game only. Now, unlike the virulent gifts, which you sort of added them to your data sheet and held on to them until such time as you decided to use them for the game, the Ceremony of Devotion means that you will get your godly boon in the next game they play, and after that game, it's then gone. So it is, it's an investment, because it's a whole one requisition point as well as those patronage points. But, to say it is a temporary one game boon, they're all pretty good. <laughs> so, just bear that in mind when we go through these. So, um, there are it's a D3 table for each of the gods. Um, each time a model gains a Blessing of Chaos, roll one D3 and consult the relevant table. That model gains that ability during the next game in which they are part of your army. So you could, in theory, hold them back in your order of battle if you don't want them to expend their boon in a particular next given game, but the next one that they are present in. Does that mean you could hold multiple, like, and then just unleash how... In theory, yes. Wow. Yes, you could. <laughs> Sounds good. Then yeah, that, that is a valid <laughs> option. Um, while that model has that ability, it has a power rating. If it has a power rating of ten or less, increase its crusade points by two. Otherwise, increase it increase its crusade points by four. If it's a high power rating unit, after they have taken part in a game, they lose that ability and their crusade points return to normal. A model can never have more than one Blessing of Chaos at any one time. But, like you say, you could in theory have multiple blessed models waiting in the wings. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to... We'll, we'll pick one from each of these tables and uh, we'll, we'll read them out. So, for Corn, which would we like to hear about? Would we like to hear about the Blessing of Raw Ferocity, the Wall of Anger, or the Bastion of Violence. The Wall of Anger. <laughs> this individual becomes an all but unstoppable force, smashing aside all in their path. You can reroll charge rolls made for this model, and each time this model finishes a charge move, select one enemy unit within engagement range of it and roll 1d6. On a 2 to 4, that enemy unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. On a 5 plus, that enemy unit suffers 3 mortal wounds. Character based hammer of wrath. Yeah, and that's for the whole game. Yeah. So, um, unlike the virulent gifts, which I think were mostly for one phase or one battle round, um, but you could trigger it when you wanted, this is, it's active for the whole game, but it's for that game and that's it. Then from Nurgle, we have Eva, the Hive of Parasites, the Unbound Vitality, or the Virulent Rot. Maybe you should choose this one, Adam, since you, uh, you left there. <laughs> um, the last one, the Hive of Rot, was it? The, 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 the Virulent, virulent, virulent Rot. 
So, so much rot infests uh, their form that it can corrode away even powerful close combat weapons in a matter of seconds. Once per battle in the fight phase, when this model is selected to fight, it can use this ability. If it does so, select one melee weapon that an enemy model within engagement ranges uh, of this one is equipped with, and until the end of the battle, the strength characteristic of that weapon is reduced to user, and the armor penetration is reduced by two. Ouch. So you can you can really nullify your opponent's uh, really good close combat weapons. And that's something I've just noticed that is generally true with these. The the number three in all cases is like a once per battle sort of thing, but one or two are, uh, as we talked about in the Wall of Anger, uh, um, apply a whole game. Ah, you're right. I didn't actually noticed that, but yeah, that's very true. But I mean, the fact that it just basically turns off the enemy's weapons is. Kind of hilarious. <laughs> uh, and then for Sinesh, uh, we have either the Whirlwind Reflexes, the Whip-like Limbs, or the Blur of Death. Instead of Whip-like uh, Limbs. <laughs> Gifted by Sinesh, this favoured fighter keeps up a never-ending barrage of swift attacks and strikes. Each time this model is selected to fight... Select one enemy unit of an engagement range and roll 1d6. On a 2 to 4, that enemy unit suffers d3 mortal wounds, and on a 5 plus, they suffer 3 mortal wounds. And that is when they are activated to fight, in addition to actually fighting. Nice. Yep. Just throwing out mortal wounds. And then, uh, finally, we have the Zinchian Blessings. We have either Living Flames... Psychic Puppetry, or Temporal Rift Corridor. What do you think on this one, Dave? Uh, shall we go for Living Flames? Uh, the Zenitian Flames encircle this blessed warrior, snapping out and striking any unwary foes that foolishly come too close. Each time a melee attack is made against this model on an unmodified hit roll of one, after the attacker's unit has finished making attacks, that unit suffers one mortal. So, ones are not only bad, <laughs> they actively damage you. It's pretty cool. It's a slightly different effect from what we normally see. I quite like that one. Makes all them spikes on Chaos Armor worthwhile. <laughs> but in this case, obviously, it's Nietzsche in flames. It's cool. Yeah, and uh, that is about everything. So. I kind of like that as a, a way of combining all these various different Chaos-affiliated units and then pursuing your different patronages for your different bonuses and benefits. I think that's, again, a fun sort of like extra-layer crusade rules to tide Chaos players over until their, you know, Codex release. And to be honest, I would hope that they're probably designed to work in tandem. I don't see them being too tied to any other mechanics that are going to exist in codexes and hopefully you'll be able to play them alongside uh, if you so choose yeah i definitely think after this like talking about it as well i think i might have to pick this book up even just for some of those missions uh, it's really been a yeah i think it's been a really interesting one where this is definitely the most crusade content heavy of these warzone books part of the reason why it's probably just not been mentioned so much in you know the sort of match play circles which 
I think it's interesting to see that shift with the Warzone books because they seemed a bit more like add-ons to matched play and, you know, included some Crusade stuff originally and this one definitely seems to be more on the Crusade end of the spectrum, um, which is interesting to see, especially considering it didn't come with an accompanying Crusade mission pack, <laughs> which is uh, still disappointing to me, but... That said, the book itself, I think, is very interesting with the stuff that's in it. So, um, yeah, if any of that interests you at all, for any of the armies that you collect or play with or would like to use in Crusades, then definitely go check it out. Um, there's definitely some good stuff in there for those forces. I mean, Zinchian players in particular are blessed three times with their warp meld packs, their arcane rituals, and their potential armies of Chaos Undivided. And also, if you really like Castellans of the Rift. <laughs> I do like their colour scheme. I must admit, I mean, as I said earlier in the podcast, I only, I've had this book for about a week or so. I've, I've only just opened the shrimp gap and been reading it today. And um, I, I quite like that green colour scheme. Um, it's it's uh, pretty close to sensible moons, <laughs> um, which I, I, I quite like those silly, silly fan base things anyway. Uh, but yeah, it, the, and the chapter symbol, the chained uh, skull, oh, I, I, I'm sure I've come across them before, but I'm, I'm rather taken with them in this book. Yeah, like I say, I genuinely think it's going to be a book that's going to be quite inspiring to a few collectors to start some Castellans of the Rift Army. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I can't imagine there would have been many before this book, but maybe we'll see some now as a result. And, and I, I'm sure you could use the Castellans Army list to, to represent quite a lot of sort of uh, Warden chapters anyway right yeah definitely so yeah um i mean at this point this will have been about three and a half hours that the listeners will have been listening at this point so this has been a a big old episode um no doubt expanded upon thanks to our tales from the crucible but um hopefully listeners have enjoyed it Hopefully they've got a better understanding now of the Rift War and everything that they can get out of that Warzone book. Um, hopefully people have enjoyed listening to all the various things that Daniel got up to at the Crucible of War. And hopefully people will enjoy listening to more of those tales in the future. So, thank you all for listening. And to round out tonight, we will just quickly run through some of our community spotlights from all of us here. So, um... I don't know, Dave, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the, uh, the ways my... Uh, we've not really talked about it because we've been focused on this book. One of the ways my narrative gaming's uh, taken a slightly different turn recently is I've started playing a fair bit more uh, narrative first edition games with uh, the lads writing scenarios and playing those through, uh, which has been great fun. But one of the things that I found quite inspiring is the, the various old Hammer communities in in Facebook. There's quite some quite active groups some some beautiful models uh, some of the old models if you like that kind of thing get, get posted up there on a regular basis as well as discussion about where they come from and, and rules and whatnot and uh, one particular facebook group that i like and th th there has been as with any community community splitting and changing and and, and different viewpoints and you'll find quite a lot of old hammer uh, groups on facebook but the one i quite like is called the old hammer community and um yeah, there's a lot of uh, a good positivity there and people behave themselves and I, I've been finding quite a lot of inspiration from that. 
as the Old Hammer Community group on Facebook. I was just talking to a friend today, actually, who was, he just picked up a, a box of Gorka Marker, so he's, uh, yeah. he's, he's going to actually start playing that again as well. I think a lot of people are going back to playing like older editions and stuff. Yeah, because there's still a lot of fun to be had in those games. Are they perfect? Have we moved on? Have we learned different things? Yes, but does it mean those those games are, are useless? Not not at all. And then you know, Friday night, actually, I was playing Space Hulk <laughs> um, at, at our games club because you know there's still a lot of replayability and uh, and fun to be had. And, and last stories as well. I actually won the, the when I was playing the Space Marines play. I was down to my last Space Marine. I had to clear out the the last of the Gene Stealers with my assault cannon. And I killed the last one down a long corridor with with the last round of my assault cannon. And it's those kind of it's, uh, events, those kind of story moments that you remember, right? I really want to get Space Hulk at some point. It's one of, it's one of sort of the things on my uh, dream list. I think it does look very fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It is, it is indeed. Well, it's funny how in the vein of sort of like, you know, old hammer stuff, uh, my uh, community shout out this week is actually an Instagram account. Um, while it is a rather modern medium, it is for a rather veteran old hammer um, <laughs> painter and sculptor from the, uh, the very early days of Games Workshop. And that is... Um, Mike McVeigh's account at Studio McVeigh. So, for perhaps for some of the newer um, viewers, uh, some of the newer listeners and hobbyists, um, you might not have uh, necessarily heard of Mike McVeigh, but you'll definitely have seen some of his stuff. And for some of the older um, <laughs> wargamers, I'm sure he's a very well known and famous. Um, miniature painter from the old days of Games Workshop. But, he uh, was yeah, Duncan he's... Rhodes before the internet was invented, Tony. Yeah, basically. So um, he's now got an Instagram account, and uh, yeah, he's been posting about some of all the uh, classic old Hammer stuff that he's been involved in producing for Games Workshop, uh, you know, 35 years plus ago. And uh, like his one of his first sort of uh, posts was all about the very classic and famous diorama of the battle between Horace and the Emperor on the uh, the deck of the Vengeful Spirit because he was the the mind behind building and painting that original sculpted scene and uh, if you've been to the Warhammer exhibition halls at Warhammer World then I'm sure you will have seen this in a very hallowed glass case somewhere along the way and uh, yeah, there's now a very excellent account from the man himself to go follow, and he's been posting lots of very interesting insights. That's an excellent diorama if you ever get a chance to see it. And uh, in in another project I've been involved with uh, a decade or so ago, uh, irregular miniature painting, um, Mike and his wife gave us uh, quite a lot of support. So uh, they're not only great to follow; they're they're nice people as well. Yeah, and I mean he's putting some real. Like little anecdotes and stuff in his descriptions about all these things he was posting on like how in that post about that diorama he talks about the fact that the converted emperor model sat unpainted in his uh, work office drawer for about a year <laughs> yeah. just like just rolling around of a bunch of uh, you know just other detritus in his office drawer before it got around to actually being built into this diorama as a whole and painted up i love the uh Gene Steeler Colts and Space Marines sort of diorama that's on like a 
vertical plane. It's really cool. Like yeah, they're fighting. Yeah, through, the vertical like, space old mod. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, definitely go check that out. So that's her at Studio McVeigh on Instagram. And then um, Adam, how about yourself? Uh, I'm a massive sucker for really cool conversions. <laughs> so the, this one I found recently is a guy called Black Panther Astartes on Instagram and uh, he's done loads of conversion work and he's got a big um, sort of Primaris army all sort of inspired by the Marvel Black Panther film. Um, he's converted a knight in, like, in, into a big elephant, he's converted some um, Primaris marines and aggressors I think into sort of gorillas and it just looks amazing. It's all with tribal markings, um, very cool stuff. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now, that is some very cool ideas, you know, very unique conversions like you say. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it before. I think the monk, the, uh, the aggressive gorillas were the things that sort of hooked me in and then I saw the massive elephant and I was like, I've got so, to start looking for I saw his stuff this week as well. Um, I thought it was really cool, like, like I say, really well painted and uh, I think he's also, there's a flyer where it's like combined with like an Eldar ship to make it look a bit more like future tech. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really nice stuff. And uh, and then finally, um, how about yourself, Darren? Have you got any? Uh, so I'm going to shout out to um, a friend of mine, Scrapscapes uh, KL. I'm fairly sure it's Kuala Lumpur. So um, yeah, he basically is just kit bashing um, an orc army, but uh, a lot of it is actually made with just like found objects um, to the point where it's like killer cans that almost kind of look like spiders they almost, it's almost like one of the bugs from like starship troopers almost or something um very little like um they fit quite well to like the games workshop look but it's all made out of like like i said just random bits super nice stuff it makes some quite nice uh, scenery as well um he also did a whole range of orc vehicles that are just like wacky races themed quite fitting they're really good yeah like lots of it does fit like you wouldn't know it wasn't a games workshop model yeah but he does he, also, he sends me pictures quite a lot and i'll see it unpainted and it'll just be bits of bottles and <laughs> just <laughs> random things found around the house and that they, they when they're painted you can't even tell yeah i was just looking at the scrap build to boss head bunker that he's made yeah because I did it I did, uh, a while ago. I did a, um, a competition for it to build a boss bunker, and uh, he actually made a really nice one that was like a, almost kind of like a Hanya mask looking one in white. That and then just looking at the um, the dice tower he's built as well. That's another yeah. similar sort of like big you know scrap orc face. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, definitely go check that out as well. Then. That's a Scrapscape. Scrapscapes KL. That's the one. <laughs> Excellent. Right, well, on that note, I hope, Darren, you've enjoyed your first appearance, proper as it were, on the uh, the Narrative Wargamer podcast. I've enjoyed it a lot, mate. It's been great to have you on, Dan. Oh, thanks. 
And uh, thank you also to Adam and Dave for coming on and joining me tonight. Always welcome. Anytime, yeah. And uh, we'll have to see who we have to hand for the next episode because chances are that's going to be our Rift War fun facts. <laughs> okay. So uh, we'll have to see how that goes and if, you know, giant imperial ships being devoured by even giant uh, chaos ones with chomping maws and mutating rift um, warped zangor beast men isn't enough craziness that I'm sure delving into the pages of the actual narrative in the book is going to provide some really fun stuff to go over so we've got that to look forward to next time if we don't have a zangor beastman name generator I'm going to be very disappointed Tony <laughs> <laughs> I already have some concepts of what I'm thinking the name game is going to be so uh, we'll have to <laughs> see what it turns out so yes um, thank you all for listening thank you all for being here and joining in tonight and uh, yes like I say for the listeners I hope that the extended format thanks to the Tales from the Crucible segments is ultimately enjoyable and isn't too much um, all in one episode for people but hopefully it has broken up the sort of content within the book a bit for you and as a mid an enjoyable listening experience if it hasn't let me know and we'll make sure we can try and break it out a bit more to maybe some bite-sized chunks but um i'm hoping it's uh, come together nicely so thank you all for listening do tune in again in the future um, and until next time guys this has been for narrative walking on a podcast helping you to discover more ways to play for